Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. As always, I'm Trevor Dame. As always, he's Matt Feuerstein. That remains the same. There has been no name changes thus far, 42 episodes in. Well, I'm thinking about it for the next one. I, I don't know what my name's going to be. I'm thinking maybe like Timothy or um, Jonathan. Just like, you know, a very standard um, name that you might find for a man my age. Jonathan, Jeremy, uh, Will, oh, William. First names. Let's, yeah, let's look at the, uh, the top, you know, like, like the top 100 boys' names for the year of 1986. And I'll pick one of them. What do you think? In America, uh, yeah. Ironically, uh, William is actually my middle name, so. My middle name is, well, maybe I shouldn't even say it, because then people are going to be able to, like, search me and steal my identity and just all with the power of my middle name. So I'm going to keep it yeah. on the down low. Happy New, Happy New Year. Happy 2020. How are you doing? Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone, for another hellish year, probably. I don't oh, know. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be insane. <laughs> And also, Matt, you know what's insane is the great podcast on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, and one show that we uh, have plugged multiple times in the past, but we're going to plug again, is the Pro Wrestling Super Show, because, Matt, they had a certain person we know on the show. Oh, it was you, Matt. It was you. you another draft. They did a whole recent episode. Check it out on the feed of a WCW draft, where they drafted matches from, you know, the history of that promotion, and... Uh, Matt, we got to start calling you Mr. Vietnam because you're the king of the draft. Wow. That's morbid, <laughs> especially given like how s- s- close we came to war very recently. Um, but yes, I love doing Steven sh- and Tim's show, and it was a lot of fun. And I'm going to lay a scoop on you all right here, right now, dropping very, very soon. I will also be appearing on another wrestling podcast network my debut in fact on the voices of wrestling podcast network i'm going to be a contestant on the five-star match game with uh you know hosted by our our best buddy our number one guest our boston correspondent our godfather joe gagney and i'm going to be competing against some familiar names so uh be looking for that uh probably this week as mentioned by um Kevin Kelly on the New Japan Dome show, Joe Gagne, that son of a bitch, it's going to go right to his head. I just know it. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely tell you that he already seems super, super cocky. I'm so I, – like you and I are like so few degrees of separation removed from being mentioned ourselves on Wrestle Kingdom. Can you believe it? Yeah, it's weird. It, like it's gotten to the point where we've known enough people in wrestling or had likes or things like that where it's like – I can go look at the bookstore at the wrestling section and go, if I worked really hard, we could probably have a book on the shelf in a few years. And I go, eh, it's not worth it. Yeah. No, nope. not me, even going to try. Connection to almost everything in life. Yeah, that's true. I mean, honestly, like our, um, the fact that we know like people who are known in the online wrestling world is probably our best connection to the possibilities of any sort of um, financial success. So, but, and yet neither of us want it. I've gotten big enough in the wrestling world, so to speak, where I believe this is where my fame tops out, where occasionally, like once every few months, I'll do a vanity search and I'll see like someone on message where will be like, Trevor Dame said this. And then you will get like two or three responses that say, who's Trevor Dame? Or I don't know who that is and I don't care. And then nothing else. And I feel kind of like 
that's where I peak, and I am perfectly fine with that. Oh, dude, you are so close to a blue check mark. Don't even try it, man. <laughs> uh, maybe a blue apron check mark. Yeah, I'll take it. I don't even know what that means. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, what could that mean? <laughs> there's not much news that happened between the last Ring of Honor show and this one. In fact, this story, I I pulled it for this episode, but I just realized I think this might have actually happened a day or two after the show we're going to cover today, which is Survival of the Fittest, the original Survival of the Fittest. But it's too late to turn back, Matt. Um, this happened, I think, maybe a couple days after the show, actually. Uh, the Observer reported at the time, New Japan taped a TV show at the California Enoki Dojo. Shinya Makabe, who is a pushed guy in Japan, lost a match taped for the third show when challenging Samoa Joe for the Ring of Honor title. It was a pretty simple deal. New Japan's U.S. office asked Ring of Honor if Joe could defend the title on their TV, and Ring of Honor agreed, since it's more exposure, and in return, they get the rights to sell the match on video. And I believe, in fact, they did actually put this match on the second Samoa Joe compilation DVD they made, which, unfortunately, like pretty much every Ring of Honor um, DVD that's made in this era is out of print, but... I believe it was only like 10 minutes. And obviously, if you think that name sounds familiar, Shinya Makabe did become Togi Makabe. Uh, uh, I don't know why I changed the pronunciation of his last name, but it's kind of funny to think that this was kind of the start of a little bit of a flirt. I wouldn't say flirt, more than a flirtation. I don't know if you'd go like a heavy relationship between New Japan and Ring of Honor, but it's funny because people always talk about the modern relationship between Ring of Honor and New Japan. They're like, over the years, some people were like, oh, man, you know, New Japan, you know, really took advantage of Ring of Honor or Ring of Honor got shafted here or there. And it's like, no, tune into like in the next 18 years when we cover 2005 Ring of Honor and you'll hear about a Ring of Honor New Japan relationship not going well. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, New Japan Ring of Honor relationship now reflourishing. It's in bloom. Yeah, It's pretty wild how like one person can apparently change something that big, you know? Yeah. Like just it, putting one person, like just telling, Hey, you got some creative control. Why don't you go talk to them? And all of a sudden everything's heating back up again. It's, it's, it's wild, but maybe that ring of honor can, uh, it's still got some life left in it after all. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but what definitely had some life in it was survival of the fittest, which took place June 24, 2004, at the Ramada Inn in Essington, Pennsylvania, drawing a reported crowd of 300 fans. If you're wondering, hey, that seems like a weird venue, and that also seems like a low attendance for Ring of Honor, well, there's a extensive story behind that. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a good explanation, but then I was going to be like, wait, how do I define the word good here? Um, <laughs> um Basically, what what happened, if you've been listening, following along every episode, you would kind of know some of the background already, but uh, Ring of Honor had been, in the last year or so, been running a couple shows in Maryland, and they they were using uh, someone else's promoter's license. Um, We'll get to that in a little second, but um, MCW was the promotion, Maryland Championship Wrestling, and they had recently shut down, I believe, in 2003. It's something they had done every year. I believe it was the Shane Shamrock Memorial Tournament. And on, I think, the last show Ring of Honor did in Maryland, or maybe the the, the other one, I'm not sure, they announced, like, well, we're going to come back to Maryland, and since MCW is d- defunct right now, we are going to run the Shane Shamrock Memorial Tournament in Maryland, and it got a big pop from the live crowd. 
And this was this was the date. It was supposed to be June 24, 2004. And then, as often things happen this year for Ring of Honor, the Rob Feinstein scandal reared its head. So I will go to um, The Observer, which says... Dick Karakofi, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or wrong, who runs National Wrestling League in Maryland, and Dan McDivitt, the former Maryland Championship Wrestling promoter, were and uh, and 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 uh, son of Jerry McDivitt, well-known fact. <laughs> yeah, that is a weird coincidence. Um, <laughs> we're that's not that's not that's not true for the record. <laughs> who knows? No, no, definitely, probably not. Um, we're behind the Ring of Honor show at Michael's Eighth Avenue, which I believe was the Maryland. Uh, venue. Karakoffi's involvement was less than minimal. He was just having his promoter's license used, and in exchange, a few of his wrestlers were going to be booked to work a battle royal on the show. McDevin, McDivitt uh, was the li- liaison between the two groups and really promoting the show. On June 13th, after word got out that Feinstein had involvement in Ring of Honor when they were led to believe he didn't, he sent McDivitt an email saying he wanted to pull out. The building itself also didn't want the group. McDivitt said he was no longer going to work with Ring of Honor, which basically has no place to run in Maryland. They hastily moved the date to the Ramada Inn by the Philadelphia airport, which, with most of the tickets priced at $5 to try and get a crowd on one week notice. The feeling is it, it, the feeling is it was to do the cheap prices and attempt to at least have a crowd or cancel the date. So... Yeah, I mean, for those who didn't go back and listen to our Mammoth Six Hour at our best episode, where the first three hours of that is just us recapping the entire year of the Rob Feinstein story, we had reached a point where we're very close to the date where Rob officially sells his shares of the company to Carrie Silken. But this was kind of this was this month was the era where. Things had settled down a bit. People thought that Ring of Honor, that Rob Feinstein already wasn't involved with Ring of Honor, and then all of a sudden the story breaks. That actually, it turns out technically it looks like Rob still owns his shares, and he's maybe threatening to come back if he doesn't get certain negotiations going his way. And it cost them Maryland for a time. It, they did not come back for, I believe, quite a while. Yeah, like years. Yeah, um. and uh, had to run the show again. Five dollar tickets. You know, um, pretty I mean, amazing to think. I mean, to think the level of talent that three hundred. Like to me, this would be one of those cool bragging things. I was thinking the other day when I was thinking about this show, like to say you got to see Brian Danielson, CM Punk, Samoa Joe, just like Homicide, the Briscoes, like just Austin Aries, this crazy level of talent. Like in many, many of them in their primes, I would argue, for five dollars at a Ramada in like banquet hall or something. Yeah, and a few of them like really going for like having great matches. Even uh, yeah, at the at the Ramada Inn for five dollars. I mean, you can't blame ROH for doing that. You know, when they were kind of their hands were tied at the end. I mean, I think it was probably the right decision in the end. Yeah, especially you'd have to cancel the bookings of the wrestlers, and also, I, I think this is probably something they've talked about in the past. Where at this point with Ring of Honor, with so much uncertainty around the Rob Feinstein thing. If you cancel a show on such short notice, people are probably going to start to like lose confidence in the promotion and maybe Ex- some of the promises it's making. Exactly. At the same time, it is bad optics to have like two shows out of three where they have to sort of do like a weird last minute venue change uh, between Generation Next in the tent and this show at the Ramada, both in Philadelphia, oddly enough. But um, like I said, can't they kind of had no choice at that point. Yeah. Um, the PW Torch had a little more information on this at the time. They wrote, 
The story was apparently faxed to a former state senator in Maryland who owned the facility where Ray of Honor planned to run an event, Michael Saith Avenue. And then he called Dick Caracoffey, the holder of the Maryland's promoter's license that Ray of Honor was using for the event. And together they decided to inform Ray of Honor they could not use the facility or the promoter's license due to fear that any association with Feinstein could damage their reputations. That forced Ring of Honor to move their show to Philadelphia and use the promoter's license of rock and rebel Chuck Williams, who will wrestle on the show and get paid in exchange for letting Ring of Honor use his promoter's license on short notice. Ring of Honor had previously used Feinstein's promoter's license, but that was not going to happen for obvious reasons this time. Someone with Ring of Honor will be filing with the Pennsylvania State a- State Athletic Commission to get a license for future Ring of Honor events. So that's something, if you, if you look at um, some sites that give the live results for Ring of Honor shows at this era, sometimes you will see the Rock and Rebel wrestle a match that it's not a match that ever makes DVD. And if you're wondering why, this is why. It's they would use his promoter's license and in return he'd get to wrestle a very short match that would never actually make it to the home release. Hey, you know what? If it makes him happy, why not? To me, I would feel almost like it, like, no, I, I agree with you actually on that, but part of me was thinking, I was trying to think the other day, like, how would I feel about that? Like going to a crowd that doesn't really know me, doesn't really have interest in me. I know it's not making tape. I know everyone's just doing this because I'm loaning them my promoter's license so they can run a show. But, like, I'm still going out in front of a crowd and performing. That, that's such a weird experience that has to be. Yes. Although, I guess, you know, some people are not neurotic and self-conscious like we are. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to imagine, honestly, but it's true. Like, I feel bad like, if I'm putting somebody out if, like, I don't pay for a share at dinner or something. So the idea of, like, yeah, could you let me, like, wrestle in front of your crowd of hundreds of people? You know, you can edit it out. It doesn't matter. Like, it just seems... Yeah, I, I I would faint, you know, at the pressure of, of all the psychological neurotic implications my brain would form. Yes, um, fully uh, fully so, agree. <laughs> and the other this this um this change of venues actually had a couple other um, effects on the show and on Ring of Honor of the area of the era because this actually affected Rob Feinstein's mindset the the force of venue change about even continuing to be part of Ring of Honor because again you have to realize at this time this was when Rob was negotiating with Kerry to do a real legit sale of his shares of Ring of Honor to Kerry and at the time he was threatening things he was thinking maybe he could come back to wrestling maybe in the short future in some form with Ring of Honor or away and uh we can go to I think this is the observer negotiations got tense on June 18th, and this is between Kerry and Rob, to where Feinstein threatened to back out and return at the 624 Philadelphia show, but it's very unlikely that will happen. After the company lost the Glen Burnie building, it registered with Feinstein that if he appeared in Philadelphia, it would kill the company, and even that the company couldn't survive if he didn't sell it. And then the other quote was, it is not believed Feinstein is planning to start promotion with Gentry at any time soon, as Feinstein realized by the Glen Burnie situation that any building he booked could end up being canceled should an enemy conduct the building with his background, which is likely to happen. I mean, contact the enemy, the building with his background, which is likely to happen. At first, he was targeting three to four months in the future to start, but now it'll be a long time if ever. So that's something I think sometimes people forget. And again, another thing we touched on the At Our Best episode, but there was a time from when the first story broke out and it kind of settled down. And this period where Rob Feinstein kind of felt like either he could come to Ring of, return to Ring of Honor sooner, even though they had told everyone 
you know, he's never coming back or that he could start a separate promotion. And I guess this is the show, if you believe the observer that basically killed that idea in Rob's mind that people were going to forget about this or that he would be able to start something or be involved in promoting wrestling and no one would try and, you know, retaliate against him in any way. This, this is the, so in some ways a pretty landmark show for ring of honor in, behind the scenes in a weird way. But the, he does do it, right? He does try. Like, what is the name I of the promotion in 05 or, or 06? What was it? Like PWU? Was that or something? Something, something like that. Yeah, he and Gentry, Gentry, yeah, they did run some, I think it was one or two shows only. So it is some time later. But here, I was shocked reading this. I forgot. He was thinking like in three or four months. So before the end of 2004, he thought he was going to be able to come back. And obviously, I do not think he comes back anywhere close to that point. But he does... Yeah, he, you are right. He does make a some stab at it that doesn't really work. But I, I think this is the thing that really just got through to him that this was never gonna, this was not gonna blow over at least anytime soon. I mean, right. if Rob Feinstein tried to promote indie wrestling today, I have no idea what the reaction would be. Probably not good, but you know, he does have. He still has his place in wrestling. Like major names still do shoot interviews. They still like let him arrange their photograph and autograph signings. I so I don't know what the I don't know. It's it's weird. It feels like the culture is more strict against scandals like this. But at the same time, it almost feels like Feinstein's one of those people that's been grandfathered in. Like people, like he's st- like I just said, he still has a place in wrestling. Yeah, um, I don't know. So it, it's weird. I, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to speculate. But – and then the final thing before we get to the show, Matt, the final kind of hitch that this threw into things for the show was Ricky Steamboat was originally booked for the show and he does not appear. And we go to a Pro Wrestling Insider that wrote, Ricky Steamboat is off tonight's Ring of Honor event in Essington, Pennsylvania over travel complications dating from the venue switch from Baltimore, Baltimore Maryland to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. According to a source close to Steamboat, he was looking at two flights followed by over an hour drive to Philadelphia, and he wasn't too keen on that idea. Uh, The PW Torch fills in a little bit more. Ricky Steamboat was pulled off this Thursday's June 24th Ring of Honor event in Philadelphia due to travel issues. Basically, due to the change of venue, Ring of Honor is only expecting a crowd of 200 to 300, and the cost of changing Steamboat's flight at the last minute was more than was budgeted for. So both sides agreed to have him skip this event. So one side saying, ah, it's too much travel. One side saying, well, would have been too much money for a crowd this small to change his flight. Either way, it's just same basic story, which was changing the venue, forced them to leave uh, Steamboat off the show. So if anyone's wondering why Steamboat wasn't on the show when he was appearing on most of the shows at this point, that's why. Wait, this show was on a Thursday? I don't think I realized that. That's unusual. I didn't know that either until now. June 24th, 2004 is the date of the show, yes? Yes. Yeah, uh, that was a Thursday. <laughs> that's weird. Yeah. A I, Thursday Ring of Honor show. That's only happened as far as I can remember on like WrestleMania weekends and stuff, like where they do like a triple shot. At least back then, maybe different. I mean, well, in this era that I'm talking about, in like the post like Sinclair era, I'm sure things are a little different. But yeah. That almost makes the 300 uh, person attendance figure more impressive to me that they drew that on a, on a Thursday. You, that's not that's not bad on like one or two weeks notice of changing the venue. That's not bad to get that many people out on a Thursday night. I mean, again, five dollar tickets is a is a great motivator. But yeah, um, and 
I guess I have one more piece of news. This is just related to a steamboat, but not this show, but this was written in the observer at the time. Ricky Steamboat has agreed to come in full time for Ring of Honor, but the program with Punk will be blown off on the July 17th show in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Steamboat has made it clear he's not coming out of retirement for a match against anyone. He's going to have a role where he will get in feuds, but will coach younger guys against the heels for the most part. His real role is going to be more as a backstage coach to watch everyone's match and then afterwards get with the guys and teach them about working the crowd and crowd psychology. Everyone raves about how Steamboat interacts with the talent as they all respect him and he doesn't act like the new style they do is wrong but just talks about how they have to have better timing to make what they do mean more and matt just as someone that's watched and listened to a lot of wrestler shoot interviews i can definitely say dave Meltzer is not alone in report like this is a, definitely a confirmed story where a bunch of guys i've heard from ring of honor of that era just raved about talking to ricky steamboat in fact when we get to a the third CM Punk Samoa Joe match in Ring of Honor in 2004. Uh, we will get to a story about how Steamboat actually had kind of a key influence and basically thought a major spot in that match for those guys. Yeah, pretty much everyone talked a lot about how great Steamboat was to work with. And uh, when everyone says that, you can pretty much assume that it's true. Yeah, and it is nice. Like I think that is a nice little thing where so often you get this idea of oh, only veteran, either the veterans, you know, they don't care about like they hate the modern style or whatever. The idea there that sounds like he was, he wasn't, you know, maybe the way Dave words that like maybe he's not in love with every part of the new style, but the idea of just like he's not telling them not to do things that are working. He's just trying to add skills to that, which you know, and, and you can. There's a generation of wrestlers that work with that guy that really appreciate that. So. I think that's the good direction to go and you know, be a steamboat, don't be a cornet, because one guy is going to be remembered by like a whole again, like a whole generation of wrestlers, I think, dramatically different than the other guy. Yes, and um I mean Cornette is uh, I don't think he's gotten uh he's tamed his his approach at all. I think it's gotten more and more and more extreme as the years have gone on. Yeah. And uh so we finally now get to survival of the fittest. We open with Loke, H.C. Loke backstage. Uh, Loke is pissed at the new and improved Carnage crew of Danny Daniels and Masada and says there can only be one Carnage crew. He says that Ring of Honor Reborn Completion, which is the next show, the two Carnage crews will have a weapons match and the orig original Carnage crew will live while the new one will die. So H.C. Loke, I believe he doesn't wrestle on this show. So just, I guess... A little promo to keep that feud in people's minds so it doesn't completely miss a show where there's no mention of it. Yeah, not much to this promo, not much to this angle, whatever. <laughs> and so we get to the opening match of the show, a survival of the fittest qualifying match. Mark Briscoe defeated Alex Shelley via pinfall in 10 minutes, 8 seconds when he used a leg trap cradle. Uh, Matt, before I throw it over to you, I guess we should just explain what the Survival of the Fittest tournament is, if people don't know, which is it's a one-night tournament. It's six singles matches, and the winners of those six singles matches face in a six-man elimination match at the end of the night. And whoever wins that is the Survival of the Fittest. And at least this year, I, I think probably every year, you don't really get anything. You don't get a trophy. You don't get a guaranteed title shot you just get the distinction of being the survival of the fittest. And this was modeled after the Shane Shamrock Memorial Tournament, right? Like, this is what that format was, right? As far as I can I tell. So, yes. Yeah, so, 
and I'm pretty sure there were four survival of the fittest shows in ROH. Is that right? Oh, four, oh five, oh six, oh seven. I'm not sure. I, I should have done a little more research on that, but there was, you know, at least a couple more. But I don't know, especially like for all I know, my my knowledge of modern Ring of Honor is so bad. They could have done like some random Ring of Honor like I pay per view for Honor Club in Vegas in 2017 and done a survival of the fittest. Like I I would have no idea. Well, there were at least four. That that I know. And I can also say that none of them ever get talked about or are, or are remembered at all, except for this one. This was the only one that really stuck in anyone's mind. I'm not saying there's nothing good on any of those shows. I guess we'll find out. But this was the only one that anyone actually ever talks about. Um, and, um, yeah, so this is the opening match. And before I talk about the match... Uh, the production was terrible. <laughs> it was so bad. Like, uh, it's not the only show that had this, but like washed out color, weird lighting, glare from the from the arena lights, or you know whatever you'd call them. Not obviously not an arena, but um, coming into the camera, just darkness and just uh, it was distractingly bad. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Oh, oh yeah, it was. There was one. Um, camera angle. I think one of the uh, handheld cams or, or some camera angle where the lighting was so bad, the glare was so bad. And I was doing my research for this episode. I was going through the PW Torches from 2004 for their reviews. And I didn't really lift anything from the reviews this episode because there wasn't anything too notable. But at least one, if not two of the people on their roundtable reviews were even made a point to say like, the the camera glare and the production quality on this is just terrible. And so if it's big enough that like even by the standards of 2004 indie wrestling, which were, I believe, in production values, in many ways far lower than the standards we have today, the fact that people were going like, no, this is beyond the pale, like not good at all. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it hurt the show a lot for me. Like, I've had it hurt the show a little bit in other shows, but this one hurt the show a lot for me. It was hard to watch a lot of the time. Um, That said, um, Alex Shelley and Mark Briscoe are good wrestlers, and they had a good match. Um, You know, the commentary, noticeable. I liked how Nolte kept calling the show's programs because that just added to him seeming old. You know, it's like something an old person would say, I need to watch my programs. Um... And uh, Nolte did do that. Um, but, you know, it was just a back-and-forth match. You know, Shelly was being the heel, but not so much that it was like a super heel babyface match. It was a lot of just wrestling. Um, Shelly was going after the neck, you know, which makes sense. You know, guillotine, guillotine Mark over the top rope with a um, leg drop to the outside. Um, Mark, you know, also was going after the uh, the leg of Shelly. He dragon-screwed him on the ropes. Um he did a springboard missile drop kick to Shelly's knee and a Texas cloverleaf. Um, but Shelly got an Alabama slam, got a border city stretch, but Mark escaped, got a cloverleaf, rolled over into a pinning cradle and got the win. Um, I thought it was totally solid, um, but unmemorable overall. Um, I was wondering if this would would have been considered like an upset at the time since Shelly was getting a push and Mark was a tag star. I guess this probably wasn't an upset. It was probably more like a 50-50 shot of who might win. And, you know, given the way they booked the night, it made sense for Mark to win. And I thought it was a pretty good opener, just not anything that you would ever remember. It's weird because you can look at it two ways. On one hand, you can say... Alex Shelley is the leader of this brand new stable that just debuted. So you think that you'd be kind of protected. So it, it is an upset. But on the other hand, you could say, well, Alex Shelley's just 
kind of starting out in Ring of Honor. He's still establishing himself. And Mark Briscoe is a former, you know, tag team champion. So he's a former Ring of Honor, you know, title holder. So in that sense, but it, it did kind of feel, I kind of had that same reaction of you watching it where I was like, this feels like an upset to me in a way when it really shouldn't be. But something I've gotten rewatching these er, these Ring of Honor shows, the first ones after Generation Next forms, is Generation Next didn't win as much or like was pushed as strong at first, maybe as I remembered. Like there are wrestling matches that are a lot more kind of 50-50 or mundane and losing a bit more matches like this than I remembered. And I don't know, it's it's a little bit weird. Obviously, it didn't kill these guys' careers or anything. But you just, I just remember the, you know, the big angle where they basically take over a whole show that gets named after them. And then you kind of forget the next few shows after that, where they're not exactly like, like we'll get to the main event, which is probably the, the one big thing in these neck in the first few shows after generation next spotlight that any member really gets shined on, on. And even in that case, it's, it's a loss for the guy. It's a great performance, but it's a loss. But going to this match, well, yeah. I, oh, sorry. Go on. No, I was going to kind of mention your point there. I don't know if I agree, honestly. I think this is ROH's style was not you're going to push a guy by giving them a bunch of dominant wins, right? It's you're going to push a guy by giving him the opportunity to have great matches and possibly lose and I and put on good performances. And I think Generation Next really was living up to like they clearly were a big part of the mid card immediately. Their personalities got over very quickly, and they all really stood out as. As far as performers compared to the mid carters that were before them, so I think that they, um, I don't know. And Shelley was given a lot of mic time. I think they really did make their mark very quickly. It's just that the style of push that ROH gave at the time is not maybe the more traditional. Okay, these guys we're going to get them over, so we're going to put them over big stars and get them, have them look dominant. I, I think. And by the end of the night with Aries, especially, it's like, all right, well they're made men in ROH at this point. Yeah, definitely Aries at the end. And yeah, actually, you do have a good point. Uh, the match itself, I agree with you. It was solid. It, it wasn't like anything that's going to steal the show. This was one of a few matches in this first round of the tournament where it did kind of feel like these guys were not going all out. And they weren't, you know, they weren't mailing it in, but they were, you know, they were wrestling like they knew one of the two guys was going to have a match later in the night and they didn't have to go out and do every single thing. And this is a very simple match where each guy picks a body part. They go to the mat a bit and you went over the key spots. Like I thought the highlights, I love Mark Briscoe's dr- springboard drop kick to the knee. He's that's a fairly regular spot. He does at this point in his career. And I just, I like the accuracy. Like it looks really good. It's just a cool, you don't expect it to go that low. Sometimes I really like that. I liked that guillotine leg drop with, uh, Mark Briscoe's neck on the ropes. I thought that was cool. And I guess the only other thing I'll mention, you know, solid, you know, average to slightly above average match. The only one thing I'll quibble with a bit is Alex Shelley had this reputation. Sometimes some people really didn't like him. I was a pretty big Alex Shelley fan, but some people, they thought he was doing convoluted moves just for innovation's sake. And in a lot of these early Ring of Honor shows, I felt like a lot of his innovative moves were not innovative for innovative sake. I thought like they looked cool, but they also, the things, the little tweaks he was doing made sense. But there was a move on in this match where he decides, it's basically, he crosses Mark Briscoe's legs and then flips him over his shoulder into an ace crush, crusher. And there is no reason for him to cross the legs. Like it adds nothing to the move. And that is the kind of thing I believe people 
when people talk about like weird moves in the indies, especially, especially in this era, there was a lot of that where it's like, oh, I'm going to cradle this guy or do across the legs or something where it was moves where it would add nothing, but it was just wrestling was very hyper-focused about what's the next innovative move. And a lot of times that meant doing something that was completely unnecessary like that. Yeah, I'm not sure if we've totally gotten away from that era, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I think we still have that to a, some degree, but I, I, it felt like in the middle of the of the aughts, as they would say, uh, it was pretty nuts the, the amount of things like this you would get. Yes, but, that's true. Uh, that brings us to the second survival of the fittest qualifying match. Colt Cabana defeated Trent Acid via pinfall in seven minutes fifty eight seconds with what uh, I believe Martin Nolte referred to as the Peretti special, which is another kind of cradling pinning predicament. Um, it's funny because Gabe during this match does his Gabe on commentary thing where he leans so far into something, he tips it off because he keeps saying, Oh, Colt Cabana's prowess dog, crazy new finishing hold. And, you know, he hypes it up so much, you know, it's going to be kind of a comedy let down. And then when it does happen, they even act like, was that it? That's it. Like, like they act like, you know, the comedy is, are we even sure that is the move he's promising? But as a whole, this is another match. It, it's okay, but there's not a ton to it. There's a few minutes of com- – there's a little bit of comedy at the beginning where you know Colt makes Trent dance and then when he doesn't want to. And Trent's actually pretty good for a guy who has a pretty colorful persona himself at playing the kind of angry, indignant guy who doesn't want to have fun. Like that's a hidden calling he missed. Um, they do a, co- a little bit of comedy and then – Colt kind of controls for a few minutes and you got a final couple big minutes where Trent hits a couple big spots, but then you go to the finish. There isn't, it, it's not a particularly, it's a very mediocre. It's, it's a match. I struggled in my notes to write things about Matt. Do you, or do you disagree with that? Yeah, there was, this was a nothing match. Um, basically an exhibition for Colt. I can't even describe what that, um, that roll up was. Um, but Nolte called it the Pereni special, the, the Pereni special. I have no idea. I don't know. Did, does that mean anything to you? Uh, no, I think she was a, uh, I mean, she was a former women's wrestler, but then I thought there's also a male wrestler. So I don't even know who invented it. I don't know if he's accurate and that's what that move resembles. I have no clue. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was not, um, much of a move. I don't think, I don't remember Colt using it much after that. Um, it also wasn't much of a match. Um, they do note on commentary that Colt on the last show got his neck badly beat up, right? With that crazy head drop move by the Prophecy on the previous show. Prophecy, not on the show, by the way. Just realized that. Um, but um, he was just back being old, goofy Colt on tonight's show. So I don't know if that was bad booking or who cares. Maybe it's who cares. Um, but yeah, it was just a lot of build up to... Um, to this move that turned out to be nothing. Um, the dosi dos were cute, I guess, like you said, but this was definitely the least, yeah, I would say the least memorable match on the entire card and uh, was basically just, it just existed to get Colt into the main event. Um, it is uh, funny that they mentioned that Acid's family was apparently in the audience and given how small the audience was, I assume that's just everyone in the crowd was related to <laughs> Trent Acid. And boy, like, I mean, maybe it wasn't much of a distance, but 
if I went to the show, like expecting, like as a big family member or friend of Trent Acid, and this is all I got, I feel like, uh, well, they did. They did not. Add, they did not draw as much attention to themselves as Jay Lethal's family would do in the near future. Oh. What? That's not insulting. That's like one of no. that was like their shtick. No, oh, oh, I, I was thinking about something happening later on this show, but I don't even know if that's related to Jay Lethal's family or yeah. not. But there is a loud fan later in the night. Oh, maybe it was. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll talk about it when we get to it. Yeah. That's what I thought you were referencing. And I wasn't like, oh, that's wild. I no. was like thinking about th- there's a loud w- fan in the crowd in a later match where the, the rest of the crowd does not seem to appreciate her uh, her zeal, we'll say. Well, you but you know about that, right? Jay Lethal's mom and how she yeah. would be yeah. very – and they even work her into a match with Loki later this year. She, she is in the Pantheon. If there was a, a – um, a Mount Everest of great Ring of Honor wrestling parents. It would be her and Papa Briscoe both on that Mount Rushmore. Yeah, pretty much just them. A double, a two-person Mount <laughs> Rushmore. A two-person Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Um, so we next we go backstage with Sugar Sean Price. He's joined by the Briscoes. Um, Mark says he's fine, even though he, he had a, one of his bo- he had a body part worked over in his match. He'll be okay for the main event. Jay has to face homicide later in the night, and he says he doesn't have reason to fear homicide because he's went toe to toe with Samoa Joe recently in a steel cage, and Joe just beat homicide. So he's using that fabled MMA math where it's like, well, I did well against the guy that beat him, so I'm not worried about this guy then. And that brings us to what was the announced survival of the first qualifying match, which was Austin Aries versus John Walters. But that match doesn't happen because what happens is the start of the segment, a limping Alex Shelley gets on the mic and he cuts a promo. He reminds Walters that they took his spot a month ago and he says, you're not on Generation Next's level. Uh, Shelley says, Walters doesn't deserve to be in this tournament and gives him two choices, step down or get beaten down, which is the little... Not great catchphrase he was trying to really get going in Generation X. It didn't take. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Walters teases leaving but attacks only for Generation X to quickly win out with the numbers game. Uh, Shelly hits him with a chain wrapped around his fist. Uh, Walters blades. Unfortunately for him, it's not a huge trickle or maybe fortunately depends how you look at things. Nothing like Matt Stryker on the previous show. Exactly. Uh, Shelly grabs the mic and he uh, announces Aries as the winner as the refs check on Walters. But then Gary Michael Capetta comes up to the ring very quickly and he says that Ring of Honor always has a backup plan. And he brings out Josh Daniels, escorted to the ring by Prince Nana, because at this time Josh Daniels was in the embassy. Aries then grabs the mic. He praises Josh Daniels. He says he has what it takes to join Generation Next. And then Aries does this thing where he goes, I wonder why you haven't got the respect you deserve in Ring of Honor. And then he pauses and he quickly realizes, oh, you suck. And then he just sucker punches him, sparks another group beat down. Shelly's about to hit another chain assisted uh, punch, this time to Josh Daniels, until John Walters runs back to the ring. He chases his generation next out and he grabs the mic. Walters asks the crowd, who has seen final battle? And a bunch of the crowd has, they cheer. Walters then says, you, then if you've seen that, you know it takes more than a chain shot to keep me down. Uh, Shelly on the outside lifts off the chain, and he shouts, two chain shots, which gets some crowd laughs and got me laughing at home. I thought that was a cute little line. Uh, Walters wants to make a match happen right now, and then ref Todd Sinclair gets on the mic, and I guess seemingly all on his own, announces this is going to be a tag match where whoever gets the fall gets to advance to the survival of the fittest tournament. Uh, Who has power in Ring of Honor? Is it Gary Michael Capetta? Is it Todd Sinclair? Is it this crazy board of the directors that votes on the 
the contenders ring circle that which we'll get to later i guess <laughs> like who has the power because it seems like anyone who says they do does yeah and this was one of those weird things where i i think we've mentioned this a couple times but definitely while um, authority figures are overused in wrestling, there was definitely a few times in Ring of Honor in the first two years where they probably could have used an authority figure because, yeah, it just feels like everyone who is remotely related to Ring of Honor just makes up rules and booking decisions on their own as need be. Like, I do not think Todd Sinclair was in the back before. Like, he just, on the fly, gets on the mic and decides, well, this is how it's going to go. Well, even um, Gary Michael Capetta, he called out Josh Daniels. Like, like what? Who? Like, aren't you just like an interview guy? What's going on? And, and he said, you know, Ring of Honor always has a backup plan. But he came out like seconds after this happened. And their backup plan was Josh Daniels. Like, I guess that's an okay backup plan, but it's just weird. Maybe it was edited, and he came out, and he was like, I'm going to go check with the, the commissioner and find out what's <laughs> happening. And then everyone was just waiting for a while. There was actually a 20-minute pause. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. For realism's sake. No, um, 75, 75% of the ballots have to agree that Josh Daniels <laughs> could be in this match. That joke will make sense in an hour or two. Um <laughs> Aries acts like he's going to refuse this tag match, but then he tries another cheap shot. They counter, the match is on. And so the match we get, Matt, is a survival of the fittest qualifying tag team match. Austin Aries and Roderick Strong defeating John Walters and Josh Daniels in 12 minutes, 55 seconds, when Aries pins Daniels after hitting a 450. So first, before I throw it to you, Matt, just to clarify, this is one of those stipulations I absolutely hate, where it's a tag match where the winner gets something, but only the winner winner of the fall. So in other words, it should just be a four-way, but it's not. It's a tag match where only one person gets something. It's just, I always think that's a really weird, really stupid stip. But Matt... I, I don't know this for 100%, but I think this is probably the first time Austin Aries and Roderick Strong team together in a strict two-on-two tag match. Seems, so a little bit of Ring of Honor history there. Seems that way. Um, I guess the, the stipulation makes sense for Aries and Strong because like, they're on the same team. Like One might be looking out for the other. But for Walters and Daniels, who are just basically mercenaries or independent contractors, wink, wink, um, they why would they have any reason to let the other guy get the pin? But... That said, um, it was a pretty good match. Um, Aries and Strong were total heels here, especially, you know, Aries was good at it. Also, Aries was wearing red trunks, which I don't remember seeing him in back then. Um, you know, later on, he would wear more color, more colorful stuff, but not common at the time, right? Um, yeah, it was kind of jarring to me. And honestly, not to get into style police mode here, but... I don't think it's a great look for him. I don't think red is Austin Aries' color. I think that's what we learned more than anything else watching the show, Matt, is red is not Aries' best color. Yeah. Um, Gabe mentions that Daniels is not really in the embassy because he waved off Nana. So that's another thing that no one has actually thought through or bothering to explain. <laughs> um, but um, And Mark makes a reference that Gabe doesn't get to describe Prince Nana. <laughs> Gabe's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um <laughs> Walters and Daniels were actually pretty cohesive as a tag team. Like, maybe they could have been a good tag team. Who knows? Um, but they're in control for a while. But Roger comes back with a neckbreaker, tags in Aries. Roderick trips Walters after a whip and pulls him outside. Generation next, they have the advantage for a while. They're double-teaming Walters, and Walters gets rebusted open on the ring post. And Generation next attacks the cut, and Roderick aggressively beats down Walters, even after Walters fires up and dives. Um... But the bad lighting is just – I even I wrote this in the middle, so I'm just going to read it. The bad lighting and darkness is really distracting. Um, Walters goes for an aggressive comeback with a big clothesline, and the ref 
misses his tag to Daniels. So they're doing a lot of that, you know, classic tag team. He's missing the tag. That happens a few times. Like, Roderick spits at Daniels, which causes Daniels to distract the ref, and they double-team Walters. You know, old-school stuff. Until Walters hits the double backcracker on Generation Next and tags in Daniels. And uh, the crowd isn't so into the hot tag, but Daniels, I think, does a good job. Like, he's doing a lot of, you know, the suplexes, both guys. Um, But Roderick stops him with the half-Nelson backbreaker, and Walters hits the backcracker on, uh, on Roderick, but... But Roderick then hits a double knees and his running boot and power bombs Daniels. And Aries hits the 450 for the win. I don't think the crowd was that into the story of Generation Next as heels. I think they wanted to root for them. That's kind of what I noticed. But I thought the match itself was pretty good. Like, it was, you know, good classic heel stuff. It just didn't actually work for this crowd. Yeah, I noticed on the uh, the the first match, too, Alex Shelley got a bit of a bigger pop than I would have expected for this early in his Ring of Honor run. But then... If I remember correctly, you know, Philadelphia, that's where Generation Next was formed. So likely you have, I would imagine, a lot of the same fans that got to see them on a, on a night that in a lot of ways was dedicated to them. If you didn't go to any other city in the area, this was your first chance to uh, see them again in Ring of Honor. So, yeah, they were they were pretty over and kind of going against the grain, like you said, working as the heels. But I thought this match, it's weird, like how similar it was to the the tag they just had on, I think it was the very previous show where it's the same basic setup where Generation Next comes out, They there's going to be a singles match, they threaten someone and say, you know, step down or we're going to take you out. Generation what? Next is the Teddy Long of um, of Ring of Honor. They make things, <laughs> they turn things into tag team matches. <laughs> they, um, they bloodied, you know, this time it was John Walters, last time it was Matt Stryker, and both times, you know, the guy that gets bloody immediately runs back to start an impromptu mat- tag match. And so, very similar. I thought this match was fine. Just the theme for a lot of these first few matches on the show, it was fine, nothing special. Didn't feel like they were going out of their way to try and do anything special. I felt like everything after the hot tag was really pretty ex- like the hot tag i agree was good and everything after that was pretty exciting but i think that was like the last couple minutes of the match so yeah, everything yeah. else was fine but really the highlight of the match where you go oh this is just getting going this is getting good is, is a very small little sliver of what you get which is fine but nothing too great uh i liked the i like john walters hitting the double lung blower with one knee for each guy i always thought that was a little bit cool there was one spot here that went kind of wrong that i think could have gone really wrong where i believe josh daniels is doing a northern light suplex to austin aries i guess there's a bit of miscommunication on when they should leap like both leap at the same time and it looks like aries could have Maybe if he had leaped a little bit more off or the other guy had done it wrong, like they land kind of weird. Like he could have landed on his head if he had under rotated a bit and would have been bad. But luckily nothing bad happened there. Um, my other other notes here is backbreaker chant for Roderick Strong, which, again, I think is one of the early instances of that. So Philly was Generation X's first big hot market. And uh, I just wrote in my notes. Josh Daniels is so Chris Benoit, I can't stop saying it. Like, it really is – he's not a bad wrestler, but between his his build and his offense and just everything about him, it, it, it's almost distracting how much of a Chris Benoit – like, people can say, oh, you know, 
Chris Benoit was in the vein of the Dynamite Kid, and Brian Danielson's in the vein of Chris Benoit and stuff. Josh Daniels is is if those guys are like an outline or influenced of each other, Josh Daniels is like a Xerox of Chris Benoit at this point. I um I think I'm a little bit nicer to Josh Daniels than you. I don't think he was any worse than a lot of the guys ROH was trying to push at the time. He was just kind of, you know, he hadn't gotten his personality yet. But maybe if they had stuck with him, he would have turned into something good. He clearly had a lot of raw talent. Honestly, his fundamentals, like how he executes the stuff he was doing, like probably better than some of the guys that were on the active roster at this point. Yeah. Like it's just his mechanics and stuff is great. It's just, it's not even the. It's weird. It does come off like a criticism, and I and I guess it is because it sh- you should be more original and have more of your own hook. But it, it just I keep getting distracted by just how clear his influence was. But you know there was a lot of guys that were influenced by Chris Benoit. There was a lot of guys that came out in this decade that were trying to you know be Chris Benoit. But I think Josh Daniels has been the biggest example of a guy who's just. Very, very, very clearly, right in your face. Like this is my influence. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, another average match on the show, and we that brings us to another survival of the fittest qualifying match. Homicide with Julius Smokes defeats Jay Briscoe with Mark Briscoe at his in his corner via pinfall in 14 minutes 19 seconds after he hits a big lariat. This is yet another match I would say uh, is wrestled with. Maybe them holding a little bit back because one of them goes on to another match. Like I feel like if you put these guys in another match without knowing that there'd been a finals for one of these two later in the night, they could have a better match. But at the same time, I enjoyed this match. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of got a, a bit of a weird pace where there'll be a sequence where you feel like the match is getting going, like a like a nice actiony sequence. For a minute, and then Homicide will just take it right back to the mat and with a submission, and they'll they just keep repeating that throughout the match, where like a minute of doing stuff, bring it back down to the mat. But at the same time, I think where this makes raises it a level above some of the other matches is just Homicide and Jay Briscoe are just have a ton of natural talent. There's a bit more of an urgency when they are picking up the pace, and I just like Homicide's net network. Like he does it a lot in this era of his career, and you know, he just does simple moves to work over the neck, and then he has cool neck, st- like basic neck offense, but it's cool. Like, I like his pile driver. I like his neck breaker. That's, you know, it's all building towards the lariat and the cop killer. And yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's not a great match. I don't even know, like, how high in the good range I'd give, but it, in my opinion, this would be my favorite match up to this point on the show. Uh, my one big negative, though, is the finish because the finish is Julius Smokes grabs Jay's foot as he hits the rope or he's he's near the rope. So he's going to hit the Jay driller. Uh, Jay is able to take out Julius Smokes, but that does stop him from hitting the Jay driller. And then very shortly after that, Jay's on the turnbuckle. He's going to hit some kind of move. And Julius Smokes gets up on the apron and stops him from doing that in full view of the ref. And I, the camera angle prevented me from seeing if the other spot was in view of the ref. But this is – like you can see the ref in the background just staring at them, not doing a thing. And it directly leads to the finish because then Homicide hits the air, ace crusher off the turnbuckles instead and then hits the lariat right after for the win. And it, it's one of those things where it's just – 
you can, I'm not one of these people, like some people who were watching Ring of Honor at the time, I remember in the message boards and stuff were like, if there was any cheating at all, they were like, this isn't Ring of Honor. This is supposed to be an honor and, and no interference at all. And I was not one of those fans, but you can't do something in full view of the referee and not have like any repercut like that for a company that preached so much about the rules that kind of took me off a little bit when it directly leads to the finish. But I would say that's the biggest flaw of this match. Well, we know that that's a problem with ROH in a lot of matches, right? The guys just use chairs or whatever. And like, it's, it's fine. Like, and it's like, is this ECW or is it ROH? Who the hell knows? Um, as far as the match, I mostly agree with you. A couple things that I noticed that were interesting. Um, Homicide started wrestling the match while wearing a beanie on his head, like a winter hat. Um, and I thought maybe he nicknamed the beanie Beanie Siegel. Because <laughs> that's the guy who sings his – who raps his entrance music. So that's um, that's my joke right there. Um, I also enjoyed a Homicide using a pile driver at the beginning of his offense. That's a bold move. Um, gets, gets a two count. Um a lot of chin locks here, honestly, which is, you know, I guess fine because it was an entertaining match, but you don't really see that too often in ROH. But I guess that's kind of what you were saying. Homicide just took it down, right? He just kept taking it down. Um, near the end, Jay went for a Jay Triller, but Smokes grabs his feet, and then Jay hits Smokes. So Gabe goes, the outside interference did not work, but he literally just blocked Jay's finisher. So it seems like it worked. I don't know. Um Meanwhile, then, then after that, of course, Jay went to the top. Smokes grabbed his leg again inside, hit the H cr- H- Ace Crusher, excuse me, and the Lariat to win the match. And I was just thinking that whole time, Mark was at ringside too. So like, hey, why are you there if you're just letting the other guy's manager interfere and cost your brother the match? Like, real, big help. Nice job. Yeah, that's. I think that's the thing that bugged me, like, w- when you bring it, put it that way, is not that there was interference, but between Julius Smokes and Mark Briscoe, two guys at ringside, you couldn't have had some contrivance where the referee was distracted for a second if you wanted to do that. Like, you couldn't have had Mark get mad at some other interference and then distract the ref accidentally, like, happens in a million matches. So at least the ref is literally not just staring at the cheating, like, with that kind of deer in the headlights I can't do anything about this. Not just the ref, but the other. It. Not just the ref, but the other guy's corner man. <laughs> yeah, you you would think you know, especially because you know these are two really good wrestlers that they would be able to think of something instead of just like literally like no imagination put into this. Just he's going to interference. He's going to interfere twice, and no one's really going to do anything about it or ignore it. But like, what kind of line is the into the outside interference did not work? Like, come on. <laughs> I think Mark Nolte's even like. Even Mark Nolte on commentary is like, I think it did. Like, he didn't hit the move. Like, he said something about it. Yeah. Just like you said. And he never does hit the J Driller after that. Exactly. Yeah. This match was was pretty good, but had had some flaws. Yeah. Like I said, these two probably could have a, a lot better match, and I'm sure that probably somewhere that in the future they do have a better match. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I would note, Matt, is did you note? Oh, okay. First two things. One, there was a great Yakuza kick battle. I love me a good Yakuza kick battle. Yes, I I did neglect to mention that, but it was really good. Yeah, and then they hit a double Yakuza kick. And then did you know, there was a notice, Matt, there was a fan in the crowd, and he shouts at one point for Homicide, he goes, 
come on, put some cheese on this cracker. And Smokes, <laughs> like, looks at the fan, like, he's impressed by the words, but he's like, fine. <laughs> like, you can see him, like, like looking, re- like, like an expression I've never seen. He's like, yeah, that, good, good, you're, you're Smokes Jr., you're doing good here. And it's just, <laughs> you can almost see him making a mental note, like, I'm going to use the cheese on this cracker. Like, now we have to notice if Smokes ever adopts that. I don't think well, he does, but we'll see. For all I know, that could have been a Smokes line from like shows earlier. Or oh, but yeah. If you, if, for anyone that watches the show, just make note if you hear that guy in the crowd, like Smokes gives like a very like approving look to that fan. Like, yep, good line, kid. Um, after the match, Jay motions to his neck and the ref makes the cross symbol with his arm. So they're doing they're going full bore with like the worked shoot angle worth even having the refs do the the secret code to let you know someone's hurt well if if the cabana injury angle is any indication jay will be dancing and making jokes by the next show (laughs) um a bunch of refs and staff come out from the back they check on jay but homicides insisting on getting his post-match handshake right now and i guess that's one thing we should know is for all my complaining about the about how badly the cheating was done homicide did get booze when he got the win that way and homicides had a lot of trouble on a lot of these shows getting booze from the crowds on this heel run it feels like short of that the last show the joe versus punk show where he ruined the big moment after their match like other than that it feels like homicide would have to pull out a gun and shoot somebody to get booed by this crowd but this worked so i can i can say it wasn't done well but i mean it got booze um so Homicide keeps insisting on getting the post-man ha- post-match handshake. Uh, Mark Briscoe gets pissed, and we get a bit of a pull-apart between Mark and Homicide, followed by Homicide breaking away and attacking some of the Ring of Honor staff. Uh, the Briscoes go to the back, and then Smokes gets on the mic. He does his thing. Smokes says that he and Homicide don't like none of y'all. He's heel Smokes. Uh, homicide tells everyone to shut the fuck up, to which the crowd responds with a Homicide chant just to well, I would say to piss them off, but honestly, they just like homicide. Uh, Smokes looks to get in the face of a ringside fan, and Gabe does this really panic, like, let's get out of here. Well, I found this whole thing super annoying because Gabe wouldn't shut up. Like, he kept talking over everything, and you had no idea what Homicide was saying, and he he was just doing that whole thing. He's the demon is risen. He's crazy. He's going after innocent people, and it's just like – he's just standing there cutting a promo. And like I I literally wrote, like, shut up, Gabe. Like, what are you doing? Like, it's very weird when he does that. I mean, there must be a reason. Like, there must be something in the promo that he doesn't want people to hear. I don't know what it is but it's very annoying uh, would you agree with that um i agree except for i don't even know if there's something he's trying to cover up or if it really is just he's really trying to ha- really hard to oversell this idea that homicides this crazy out of control guy which you know there's a couple moments they've had in these shows where he's a crazy out of control guy but really he's just homicide like the thing that's hard about trying to sell the homicide, like that, like the demon has risen. That line Gabe keeps using is this is a guy where he, when he was kind of like an anti-hero babyface, stabbed Steve Carino in the eye with a fork. So the idea that we're supposed to believe that now he's gone crazy, like, well, on commentary, Gabe mentioned like on the last show he quote stabbed innocent people because on previous shows he fork stabbed guilty people. I guess I don't know. This is a guy that's been involved in multiple storyline riots. And nearly gouged out a guy's eye, but now he's turned crazy. Okay, like it's just, it's one of those weird things that, again, I guess that's part of the problem when you've got a guy that's always basically an anti hero like Homicide, which is how do you convince that, how do you sell that guy's turned heel? When basically he always kind of acts like kind of heel. It's, it's kind of the problem WWE had with uh, Steve Austin, where it's like, 
he kind of always acted kind of heelish and was loved for it. And of course, the direction they went in was making him like extreme comedy. But it's a problem you have with characters like that. Yes, it is. Um, but it's it just it doesn't it just doesn't work when you try to make it seem like he's going crazy just because he like throws a chair. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that brings us to the I think the second last of the Survival of the Fist qualifying ma- matches. Brian Danielson defeats Jack Evans, escorted to the ring by Alex Shelley, via submission in 11 minutes, one second, with the most painful Boston Crab you might ever see. Although there is a different contender on the same show. Uh, Matt, before I give it to you, I-, I just wanted to note that in the entrance of this match, uh, Jack Evans is making his way to the ring, and he's talking shit to the camera, as Jack Evans is wont to do. And he he asks if he's wrestling M-Drags, as he calls Danielson, or the dagger, Brian Danielson. And he shows off what looks like a crumpled up printed picture of a very young Brian Danielson. And I guess this is supposed to be embarrassing. And the problem is, the lighting is so bad, you cannot make out what the picture is. You can't really get a good look at, it, which is aggravating because I would have loved to see this, this, this gag that Daniel. I mean, that Evans clearly went to some trouble to, and unfortunately, we uh, don't get a great look at. It. And Jack also references that they're both from Washington State, which is, which is true. My rep in my area, Pacific Northwest, all the way. Anyway, Matt, what did you think? This is a pretty crazy Styles matchup. Yeah, well, first of all, and during that same entrance, because Shelley's with him, um, and he doesn't he call? Am I wrong that he calls Shelley the N word <laughs> during this entrance? Oh um, my God. I um, I had to re- rewind it. I guess that's not the word you use. Like tr- backtrack the the video a couple of times. Can you see how old I am that I'm using the word rewind? <laughs> um, <laughs> like a couple times. So I'm not 100 percent positive, but I could not. Um, I could not disprove the notion that he called him the N-word during his entrance. Um, but I don't want to slander anybody, so it's possible that he didn't. But it definitely sounded like it. Um, so this match is very memorable. I think it's still kind of famous from ROH fans. You know, people I think were probably pretty looking forward to it because of the style clash. And I think it lived up to the hype. Um, starts with um, breakdancing. Daniel T's breakdancing and then told Jack to show him how. So Jack did. And I think Nolte was like, wasn't this big in the 80s? And Gabe goes, I don't think Jack was born in the 80s. So for the record, he's 13 on this show (laughs) um, because this was 2004. Um, So I guess 14. Um, Dragon can't break dance, so he does the Rick Rude hip move and crowd chants, you got served, which is uh, going to be a popular chant during Jack Evans' matches. Um, People get served a lot during them. (laughs) <laughs> so Dragon's having fun. He goes outside, threatens a fan who heckled him. He wastes little time twisting Evans like a pretzel and bending him. Um, Evans actually reverses Dragon's first hold back, um, but doesn't have much effect. Um, you know, that's kind of the, the shtick. Evans does some holds himself, but which is rare, right? You don't see a lot of matches where Jack Evans does holds, but no. Dragon just no-sells him, basically. And a lot of these holds like are hard to explain, like, Dragon, like, ties up Evans' head and arms and legs in one crazy, wacky hold. And his holds are, you know, they're, he's stretching him and bending him every which way, um, puts Evans' legs behind his head, and Mark says, it's Lord Alfred Hayes' Tower of London. And I'm thinking, I bet it's not, Lord Alfred Hayes didn't quite do that. <laughs> Probably something <laughs> similar, but I don't think he had the opponents to do that with. And then Gabe, of course, has to go, I wouldn't mind seeing Alice in danger in that stretch. 
because, you know, uh. there's no women on the show, so there can't be any violence against them. So he has to, um, <laughs> <laughs> so he has to just use verbal violence. Um, Gabe, we love you. Um, Mark jokes, is is that the new DVDs you were advertising? Joking that he, of course, he meant porn, but Gabe actually turns it into an actual plug for the ROHwrestling.com. Like, it's just like, Mark's like, yeah, you're selling porn. Gabe's like, he doesn't literally say porn, but he implies it. And Gabe's just like, well, we sell a lot of different types of DVDs on ROHwrestling.com and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's, uh, it was funny, in my opinion. Um, but um, Dragon puts him in a, like an over-the-shoulder backbreaker a la Bruno San Martino. Um, it looked painful. Evans, uh, he actually gets some offense near the end, which I guess he has to. Running knee, springboard, twisting splash to the floor, um, does a standing, twisting press, but he only lands with his head on Danielson, which I don't think probably is that effective. It's like a headbutt to the midsection, but he twists first. Um, Dragon lifts him and bends him, and I guess that's the Boston Crab you were talking about. It's like – it's basically bending him in half, and so there was an immediate tap out, um, and it was it was a very fun novelty match. This is, this gave people exactly what they wanted from this, I would say, and Dragon's really starting to show that personality that we know and love so well today um, around this time. Um, I love this match. Uh, it's funny. When, when I uh, rewatch these shows for review, what I do is I watch the show and then sometimes I'll look at reviews. Sometimes I won't, but I only ever look at reviews from other people after I've written all my notes and watched the show because I don't want anything to kind of in any way influence my opinions or stick in my head while I'm watching it. And I was surprised how many people give this match like two and a half, two and three quarter stars. Like to me, I think this is great. Uh, it, it, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. It's not a we're going to go back and forth for 20 minutes and give you 15 minutes in near falls or whatever. It's it, it's like you said. It's exactly what you would want this match to be. The idea of – it's kind of a throwback to like – well, it is a throwback. Watching this match, one thing I realized was wrestling today, Every almost everyone is so much more well-rounded. Like – the, the big guy who can be really athletic and do flying spots or lucha tumbling is way more common now than it used to be. The guys that's the crazy high flyer generally now is like a guy with some bulk and some abs that can hit hard. Where back in the old days, there was much more common where there was a lot of wrestlers where they were good at just one thing. And there were a ton of guys who were kind of like Jack Evans where they were – very skinny guys often were, didn't even really have wrestling gear and they could do two things. They could high fly and they could take a great beating. Now I, I think uh, Jack Evans is more than that. I think he's just a great personality and just a talent, but he doesn't try to be everything to everyone. I, I think what makes this match so fun is it gives you that kind of what if where you're like, just what is a Jack Evans versus Brian Danielson match even going to look like? And they don't do anything that, you wouldn't that would go against your expectations. Like most of the match, Jack Evans gets the living hell stretched out of him. When he does finally make that comeback near the end, it's not a super long one, but it's all with like flying kicks and dives and, and you know, the things you'd expect Jack Evans to be have an advantage at. And then Danielson right near that, he just cuts him off with a big, hard European uppercut. And it's one of those things where the, the match has this kind of vibe where it's like Danielson is, like a cat toying with its supper. And he's just like, okay, you've had your fun. Like, um, no more bullshit. I'm just going to wrap this up now. And Jack Evans is so flexible. The positions he gets bent into in this match are 
uncomfortable to look at. There's a great moment where, at least in one of them, the camera actually does get a great shot of Alex Shelley is at the ringside as uh, Jack Evans' corner man. And during one submission, Alex Shelley actually turns away from the ring and, like, looks at the crowd and, like, winces to sell that, like, even I can't look at how, like, stretched my partner is getting right now. And there's a – I kind of vulgarly put this on Twitter. There's a submission that referenced it where um, – I learned more. I learned that Jack Evans can probably do something to himself that is a vulgar act. But like, there's a spot where Jack Evans has a leg behind his head and his face is almost in his lap. And it is insane how flexible it is. And it's, again, there are points where it's almost uncomfortable to watch. And. Yeah, I, I just really like – like I don't think you see as many matches like this where, where it just feels like it's two people from different worlds. Like if you see a guy nowadays where it's like, oh, a high flyer versus a technician, what would that be now? If that's like Pac versus Zack Sabre Jr., it's like Zack Sabre Jr. can do like fast high spot wrestling. Pac has got a ton of muscles and he can hit you hard and do basically any style of wrestling you want to do. Like this – you don't get as many crazy kind of like I can't – where you just you, it's hard to imagine until it happens but then it makes completely sense when you're watching it what it looks like yeah that's a good point um i think probably the reason some people don't rate this quite as highly as you is because it's there's a little bit of a comedy element to it and probably some people consider it more of a comedy novelty match than a regular match but i see what you're saying like even like if you're taking it seriously this is still probably kind of what the match would be maybe sans the uh dragon doing the rick rude uh hip swivel thingamajig but yeah i mean i I get what you're saying i would probably put it not two and three quarters but also not like four stars either even though it was very smartly worked see for what i like i actually might put this at around four stars or three and three quarters but um on the comedy stuff there is comedy but with the dance stuff and danielson bailing early and getting into it with that fan where he actually tells like can we get a waiver for this guy to sign like (laughs) kind of mixing up with the guy but that's funny like i feel like it's all kept to the start and i'm much more like it's not like they stopped the match mid-match to do the comedy which is what some people were complaining about with the joe punk match we just covered where literally like 20 minutes in they take a break to clown on a fan this was all at the very start of the match and then after that you just get the wrestling match which is a strip wrestling match and i actually liked that it wasn't 50 feet 50 even like one thing another thing i love about jack evans is when he sells like a lot of guys sell like ow you're hurting me in the mo ow you're hurting this body part like when jack evans sells a beating he sells a beating like he makes it look like you are absolutely killing him he has no qualms about just looking beat to shit for you to put you over and like there's a great one where jack evans finally makes his comeback and he's like in pain and like leaning on the ropes and he is still talking shit to the camera like i think that just sums up the jack evans character where He's this annoying motor mouth who just can't shut up and can't stop talking shit. But he has this heart where even where he's like, you can beat the shit out of him and he's still going to be Jack Evans. Like he can't, he will not stop being Jack Evans. Yeah, no, he's really added a lot character wise to the shows. Like the Gen X characters in general, like really the only ones who actually have characters at this point are Shelly and Evans. And Evans does a great job of projecting personality more than almost anyone, honestly, in ROH presently at this point. 
Jack Evans is a guy who he is performing from the second he goes through the curtain to the second he goes back through it. Like whether, you know, the ring entrance where he's talking to the camera, I've seen him in tag matches where he's like talking shit, you know, from the, you know, the apron when he's not his turn to be in the ring. Like Jack Evans is constantly being Jack Evans where a lot of guys is kind of like, you know, they're only on during the match or they're only on when they're tagged in or they're only on when the match starts where Jack Evans, he, he he's giving you your money's worth. Like from the very every second he's on camera, he's doing something that catches my eye. Even when he's not in the building, I remember waiting outside a show in 2006 and he was standing out there talking to somebody smoking a cigarette and he just like people are waiting online and he just like does a backflip like just randomly and continues his conversation. So yeah. like like that's Jack Evans. And um, I guess we can save more of this for later, but I thought Brian Danielson on this night, I mean, he always looks great, but I thought he just looked so confident in how he carried himself. And, you know, he's pulling out these submissions. I think I wrote in my notes that he's wrestling tonight, like how I imagine Stu Hart would have wrestled when he was young if Stu Hart was a vegan from the Pacific Northwest. Like, he's just stretching people and then kind of just tweaking body parts and just taking pleasure in it and doing it kind of methodically but in a really entertaining way. And just there's this authority he has in what he's doing. I just... I thought he looked particularly great tonight. This is one of Danielson's best eras. Like this point, like through the end of '04, like he's just he yeah, like you said, has a lot of confidence after his uh, New Japan run, which I guess he's still in the middle of at this point. But yeah, you can see it. Like you can see, he just feels more like a star every time he shows up. Like I think the best way to put it would be if you watched last year his. Uh, match with Kofi Kingston at WrestleMania, which a lot of people would probably say is the best match WWE did the whole year, at least on the main roster, maybe including everything. That's a match where you can tell it's from a very confident veteran where the match kind of starts a little bit slow, a little more low key. And Danielson just keeps building a story and building the matchup. And by the end, the crowd is going nuts and no one can follow it for the rest of the night. And you go, wow, that's the confidence. And like, in everything he does and his faith in himself that only a veteran has. But then when you watch this show, his two matches on this show, he is the exact same confidence when he's like in his early twenties. Like he already had that kind of ring presence and that idea of like, I've got these people in the palm of my hand. I can do something different. Like they will get in, they will pay attention. Like I don't have to be constantly like worried and doing a high spot every five seconds to keep them engaged. Like he had that confidence that you think it took him a whole career to get he had it very early. Yeah, what was he like? 22, 20, 23 at 20, this point? 20, 20, 20, I think twenty three, maybe because he's thirty eight now. This was fifteen years ago, so probably you know twenty two, twenty three. Yeah, so yeah, it's crazy. So he's twenty three, and when he wrestles Aries later, you know, you think of Aries as like the plucky youngster going against the veteran, but even you know Aries is newer to the promotion, but he's actually several years older than Brian Danielson. Yeah, and Danielson wrestles that match like he's like a 20-year veteran that's won 25 world titles. And it works. You know, He has an authority where you buy it, where you, where you forget he's 23 and he actually hasn't wrestled that long. Right, exactly. And that brings us to um, the survival of the fittest, the final qualifying match. So the winner of this is the final guy in the, fi- the six-man. It's a non-title match, so the Ring of Honor world title is not on the line. Samoa Joe defeats Matt Stryker via pinfall in nine minutes, 36 seconds after he hits the island driver. And Matt, um, oh boy, um, I've said in the past that I believe that either Matt Stryker's match with BJ Whitmer at 
Final Battle 2003 or his match, his world title match with Samoa Joe on Ring of Honor Reborn Stage 2 is kind of the death of Matt Stryker's push where those are two big matches where I feel like both times they did not come, you do not come away feeling really excited about Matt Stryker and they were two big opportunities for him. And I feel like you could debate which one's kind of what ended, killed his his Ring of Honor career killed his push, whatever, even though he would continue to have matches for a little while longer. Matt, what I'm going to say about this match is if one of those two matches is the death of Matt Stryker's push, this match is the funeral. I was I was uncomfortable watching this for a different reason than the weird Kama Sutra body poses that uh, Jack Evans was being put in the last match. Um, I'm normally a believer in what a lot of people say, which is, that for a wrestler, any reaction is better than no reaction that, you know, if someone's making, you know, we've heard people like Dave Meltzer for years say stuff like, even if someone's booing you and you're supposed to be a face, at least they care if they're making noise, that's better than getting no reaction. I think Matt, this is a rare match where if I was the wrestler involved in this case, Matt Stryker, I would have rather there have been complete silence because this crowd isn't disinterested in Matt Stryker. They're interested in goofing on him. They're heckling him right from the start. They're like laughing. The best way I can put it is it's reminiscent of if you've ever seen a stand-up comedian where there's a heckler in the crowd, um, like making jokes at the comedian and the hecklers getting more jokes than the comedian. Like I felt really bad for striker. There's a moment in this match where you hear someone in the crowd shout out, you're not even the best Matt striker. And everyone in the crowd starts laughing. And Joe does this big over the top fake laugh and like points out the fan and is like, yeah, he just made that comment. And Matt striker has like no comeback. And I was just, I like was like almost went awe, like out loud, like, Oh, like, like, you know, I'm not the hugest Matt Stryker fan, but I felt for him. And here's the crazy thing. It's not a terrible match. This is, in my opinion, better than their double the length match they had earlier, a few months earlier. Um, Joe controls a lot of it. Matt Stryker then hits a few of his big bombs near the end, and they all look good. Like, he hits his Death Valley driver for a near fall. He hits a big flying neck breaker, which is impressive. He hits a superplex, which on a guy as big as Joe looks impressive. All cool spots. And then after that, Joe just flips the switch, and it's like he almost no-sells everything. He just gets up like, I'm I'm good, and he hits the island driver and wins. And, yeah, I was left feeling like that was not a terrible match, actually. And that was like, if you thought Matt Stryker's career in Ring of Honor was done before, it's really done after this. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you on the part that this was better than the match from uh, Reborn Stage 2. Like, Stryker wrestled with a sense of urgency, which is one of the things that we both criticized him for not doing the first time around, right? Like, he was doing a lot of big moves, working fast. Like, it was a mid-card style match, but he was going fast-paced. And, like, you know, Joe would keep cutting off his momentum, but he was was still trying to get it, you know? It's like Joe did the big tope early in the match. And it looked really good, by the way. It was one of his better topes. It was, like, right in the aisle. It was a really good one. But Stryker still got to, like, bail on the ole ole kick. He um, took the opportunity to jump Joe and come back with a leg trap DDT thing. Like, he got some big moves in there. And like you said, Joe kind of no-sold it at the end, beat the crap out of him, blocked the Death Valley driver, hit the island driver, got the win. Um, I enjoyed the match, though. As far as the heckling, uh, it didn't, like, cause me to have the visceral reaction that it caused you to have. Like, I I did feel bad, but I also thought, like... It had been brewing, I think. Like, I don't think it was out of nowhere. Like, you know, like they like even Generation Next was sort of like heckling Stryker at the previous show for like, you know, not being 
so uh, so popular and like getting you know so like it was brewing. I don't think it took Stryker totally by surprise. Um, but and he, you know if you really want to be positive about it, he could be like, hey, well this happened to the Rock also. Um, yeah, because you heard the. Do- Sorry. Yeah, I was about to say there were die striker die. Right. You were just about to say too. Yeah. There were die striker die chats. So not just like the typical Joe's going to kill you, which anyone's going to get, but there were specifically like we want you, Matt Striker, to die. We would enjoy seeing that. Yes. Um. I love Nolte's references. He goes, you know, maybe Striker's eyebrow was making him a heel, like Mac Curry. I'm like, oh yeah, just like Mac Mac Curry. Am I supposed to know who that is? Am I do I am I stupid for not knowing who that is? Do you know who that is? No. Okay. Then, no. And in fact, Mark. Nolte right after that then calls a Matt Stryker um, he calls a Matt Curry and Gabe has to correct them and then a little while later Mark Nolte then calls Matt Stryker Todd Stryker so he got his first and last names wrong at different points in this match and that again to me added to like how bad I felt for Matt Stryker yes. like, I just imagined Stryker <laughs> at home watching this on tape and it's like even the announcer can't remember his name and yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. For some reason, it just hit me. This is the this is the match where kind of like all these months where he's just been on a slow decline in terms of his reaction. It just for some reason it kind of just it hit me all at once on this night. But his performance on the previous two shows, in my opinion, was as good as any performance he'd given in a really long time. I'll say that. Um, but yes, we are all we all know that Stryker is not long for this company. Although he'll be around for a little while longer. Yeah, uh, but. Um, but yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a good match, like just like a, a perfectly good match. Yeah, I I would probably prefer this to a, some, at least a couple of the other opening round matches, if not more of them. It was it was not as good. Definitely, I wouldn't say as like the Danielson uh, Evans match, but perfectly enjoyable for under ten minutes. Um, after the match, CM Punk comes out in street clothes. He gets in the ring. He grabs the mic. Uh, Punk says he didn't come out here tonight to fight Samoa Joe because Joe's still in the ring. Uh, Punk says he planned in their match, in their 60-minute match that they just had to take Joe the distance. He says, I didn't think you could do it, Joe, but you did. Uh, Punk puts over uh, Joe before he says that uh, after the match, the crowd was chanting for five more minutes. Punk says, I don't know if you, me or you had five more minutes than us that night, but now he wants – now Punk wants to know when he's going to get his five more minutes. When are they going to have a rematch? At this point, before Joe can even answer, the lights go down, and eventually, after a bit of a pause, a spotlight shines somewhere else where, um, I guess on some riser, Homicide is holding the new ugly Ring of Honor title belt that he stole from ha- uh, Joe when he got presented it at World Title Classic by Les Thatcher. Uh, Joe gives chase, and they brawl into the back. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. That's um, Sorry, my... Um... My uh, microphone was on mute, and I did not realize it. Um, but um, no, I, it was just—I thought it was a pretty um, dull promo by Punk, honestly. Like one of his worst promos. He's—he was just kissing Joe's ass mostly, and totally acting like a baby face, which is not what he does later in the night. Um, Homicide uh, is a um, is a uh, crazy person because he uh, jumps off of a uh, announce platform or a camera platform that's my main takeaway no it wasn't much of an angle honestly like it was just kind of moving things along it wasn't like the big thing to go into intermission with that they usually have yeah i mean gabe you can see it in the booking where they're setting up a lot of new different matches but obviously this segment's just kind of like we still have to go back to joe homicide and joe punk so it's literally just like a segment to keep that alive in your mind and which i appreciate in some ways 
that that you know they didn't just take the show off and pretend those issues were settled but yeah it's not the main focus of the show and uh i agree with you i thought the i didn't th- i didn't think the punk promo was bad it, there wasn't just wasn't a ton to it but what bothered me was like kind of the same thing you alluded to which is punk is a baby fist on this promo and the rest of the night he's a heel and it's kind of like it, it feels like so in the Joe feud he's a completely different character at this point. And I realize Punk's turning face soon in Ring of Honor, not long after this. But at this point, it feels like he's a heel, when, you know, against everybody against Samoa Joe. At which case, he treats him with like the utmost respect and a peer, and he just wants a straight up match. And I don't want to cheat, and I want to beat you nobly. And then everyone else, you know, later in the night, he's poking Hydro in the eye. So yeah, yeah, I, I I don't like the inconsistency, but he's about to turn total babyface at the yeah. very next show, so I guess it's okay. Um, I, I did think it was funny that um that he calls um that when um when Joe is talking to about Hamas. Well, I guess you're going to get to that promo in a second, so I'm going to save that point. Yeah, uh, Gary Michael Capetta is backstage, and it's intermission time. Gary says Jay Briscoe was injured tonight, but he will be okay. Uh, Gary's joined by an angry Samoa Joe. Joe gives a very screamy promo for Samoa Joe standards, where he says Homicide has gotten under his skin, and now Homicide's going to get a war. Uh, Joe tells Homicide he has till July to prepare. He says Homicide couldn't get the job done against him before, and now he's trying any means necessary, just trying to get lucky against Joe. And then Joe says it's going down in July. And then tells the camera to get out of his face. But he also so, said he also says homicide, the strong style thug. No, you're a thug. You're a punk. So he said, so you're not a thug. You're actually a thug. That's that's what he said to him. So, but I guess <laughs> that happens when you're ran- when you're ranting and raving. I guess that that is how things go sometimes. Yeah, I'm in no position to get on anyone for a slip of words or an awkward phrase. Um, we throw to Sugar Sean Price elsewhere backstage with Brian Danielson. Brian says he's really looking forward to getting in the ring with a couple of the guys that are in the six-way tonight. Homicide's one. He references their last match together at Reborn stage. I believe that was one or uh, – no, two, I think. Um, Danielson reminds us that Homicide now only beat him after hitting a nut shot. And Danielson says, and I quote, man, that sucks. That sucks. Just in a very dead kind of tone. Uh, he's, he's still not great at cutting promos. Yeah, he, he has a lot of personality, except when he has to kind of force a character that he's not really feeling in the moment. Um, Daniel says, Danielson says the other person he's looking forward to wrestling tonight is, and he calls him the Samoa Joe. He says Joe knows the title belongs to Brian, and he brings up that he was the last person to cleanly beat Joe in a singles match. Danielson says he's going to take the title from Joe, and Sugar Son Price is very excited about what's coming up later. We thought that Danielson was in the vein of Chris Benoit, but adding unnecessary thes to things, that's pure Bret Hart. <laughs> when I beat you at the SummerSlam. Yes, or the, um, or the Summerfest, which it is alternately <laughs> called. <laughs> Uh, that, that up next is the Ring of Honor tag team title scramble match. CM Punk defended against when he defeated Special K of Dixie and Hydro, uh, the Outcast Killers, and the Ring Crew Express in four minutes fifty three seconds. When he pinned both members of the Ring Crew Express at the same time, you go. How did CM Punk defend the tag titles by himself? Well, originally this was supposed to be him and Colt defending, but before the match. Punk gets on the mic, he's out there with Colt, and he says if it wasn't for the shirt on the ref, he wouldn't be able to tell which person in the ring was the ref and which were his opponents. 
he says that their total combined weight of all those wrestlers probably equals one of him or Cabana. So this is a rare time in Punk's life where he gets to make like weight jokes against his opponents. <laughs> and uh, Punk goes on to say that since Colt has the survival of the fittest final later in the night, Punk can win the match by himself. He says they'll still be tag champs and Colt has nothing to worry about. So, Matt, before I get it to you for your first thoughts on this, um, this is this is kind of weird. I feel like this match, obviously, it's an under five minutes scramble match, so it's not like there was a great match ruined by anything. But Gabe makes, a, I think, a pretty odd choice early on in the commentary to point out that the only way Punk can lose the tag titles in this match is if he loses the fall directly. If anyone else win lo- loses the fall in this match, and a scramble match is one fall to a finish, he doesn't lose the tag titles. And I feel like if this match was going to have any potential, it gets completely dis- dis- derailed. Mark Nolte mentions multiple times, like at one point he's like, why is anyone in this match not wrestling each other and not trying to get Punk involved? And then later on when Punk gets in the ring, Nolte is like, Punkson is dumb, like he's putting himself as a risk at losing the tag house where if he stays on the apron as an illegal man, he can't lose the tag house win or lose. And both times, this is something Mark Nolte does a few times. I've noticed he like calls attention to things where he's completely right. But at the same time, he's just like magnifying things that don't make sense, which as an announcer, I feel like your job is kind of either explain them away or just don't call attention to them. But I feel like he does – he did this earlier in the night too where during the Generation Next uh, match where they make it a tag team match, Mark Nolte just outright says, well, Ring of Honor officials keep letting them make their own matches and get away with it, so I don't know why they would stop doing it. Like it's smart for them to do it. And Gabe's like, uh, I guess you're right, Mark. And it's just – Mark <laughs> has this habit of just saying the thing that probably you shouldn't say out loud. But Gabe also did that. Like, why does he even need to say that about, like, that you have to pin Punk? Like, he didn't have, like, it wasn't announced, like, otherwise. So just don't say it. And Punk won anyway. So, yeah, like, yeah, Punk wins anyway. So, yeah, he could so, have said anyone losing this cost Punk the title to add more drama because yeah. Punk wins. Right. So there was, they just made it weird for no reason. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I do want to add before the match, when Sean Price, you know, kicks it back to ringside, he goes, oh, man, this is going to rock the house off, which <laughs> I think should have been ROH's catchphrase all that a whole Ramada, year. We're going to rock Ramada, the house off. Especially when you can say that the house on this night was, again, the Ramada in yes. the Philadelphia airport. <sighs> well, they rocked it off. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this, yeah, this was a nothing scramble match. It was slow paced. There were a couple cool things like um, – like um, Oman Tortuga getting an octopus on Dutch, which I don't know why I'm laughing so much, but it's just like, like what are you doing? Like it's, I guess it's cool that they have like some good moves and stuff, but it just feels like, I don't know, I don't know. It feels like um, almost like cosplay when like those guys are doing octopuses, but maybe that's mean. I don't know because they're position as jobbers. You get what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Um, not because they're untalented people, but um, you know, really the only other highlight is the double dragon suplex by Hydro on um, on the uh, Outcast, one of the Outcast Killers, and one of the Ring Crew Express. But then uh, Punk throws Hydro outside, gets the pin himself, you know, gets the win. It mostly just sets up the next match. It's really not a match in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, under five minutes, like you said, just mostly sets up the next match. Uh, Punk steals the win from Hydro, I think, the kind of heelish way. Um, 
there is one it, it's not boring like it's it's a perfectly fine five minutes but there is one noticeable botch where the outcast killers go for a russian leg sweep leg sweep big boot combo and the boot misses so clearly that gabe even like has to acknowledge it on commentary he's like well didn't hit that but the russian leg sweep connected and but this yeah this was all about setting up what comes next and what comes next is after the match, Punk plays it up big. He over-celebrates like a heel with both titles alone as the fans chant for him. Uh, Nulty says he doesn't know if Punk is the best wrestler in the ring, but he was the smartest. And I just thought, I wrote my notes, you don't know if CM Punk is better than the guys that were in that match. Like, in, <laughs> in character, he should be clearly better than the Outcast Killers and the Ring Crew Express and, you know, all of them. Yeah. Uh, Gabe sells it like it was an ex- extremely cheap win for punk even though it was completely within the rules to steal the pin uh punk gets on the mic he gloats punk notes that he's been in only two scrambles he says i've never lost one uh punk says he expects to see ricky steamboat on july 17th so a lot of building up of the next show on this on this card um punk heals on the crowd he says they can try and clap in time to his music but they're idiots and they have no rhythm which i thought was an interesting like of all the things to complain like you don't have the rhythm that's a good thinking outside the box complaint he goes to leave when hydro gets in the ring and he grabs the mic he says punk talks about looking for competition but he didn't do anything to hydro the whole match which is pretty much true he challenges punk we get a Hydro chant. The fans want to see this. And I should note that in the scramble, there was a brief standoff between Punk and Hydro. And the fans chanted for Hydro and were excited. Um, we get a Hydro chant. Punk says, maybe next time, kid, and goes to leave. And then Hydro calls him a pussy. And we get a big CM pussy chant. Punk makes his way back to the ring as Mark Nolte makes his maybe his millionth FCC. I don't hope the FCC isn't listening reference in like three or four shows. We get a fuck em up hydro, fuck em up chant as Punk grabs the mic again. Punk says, I'm the 60-minute man, and everyone wants a piece of me, but you're not on my level. Hydro slaps Punk in the face and then offers a handshake. Punk says, Hydro just made the biggest mistake of his life. Referee's getting in the ring. Punk and Hydro do shake hands, and the bell rings, and we get to the match. So I guess before I get to the match, Matt, do you have any thoughts about the little angle that sets this up? Uh, Yeah, I thought it was good. I mean, I... I'm not the kind of person that really gets like, oh, when someone calls someone else a pussy. So like like that feels a little bit much to me, but I guess it works for the audience and maybe at the time also. So I think it was it was good. Like, you know, and the crowd clearly was behind Hydro. It wasn't like they didn't buy him doing this. Especially since he sorta of did something similar with Shelly, the generation next. And, you know, I like that they're you know, they're organically having him be this breakout guy as opposed to just like throwing him, you know, suddenly he's Jay Lethal, which is something that they would have done in other eras and other companies would have done. They're actually building him up into this new babyface character. And the crowd's behind him, so I think they did a good job. Um, The only knock I would have on it is that, like, there's two instances on the show where they're taking a guy and putting him against an established main event guy and trying to make them, like, a big star, you know, next to the main eventer. And while this match, and you'll talk about it, did a good job. There's no comparison between this and the Aries match, right? Like they're just like yeah. they're different planes. And I think maybe the comparison hurts Hydro a little bit here. But I st- I think that it was a good angle, and I like that he slapped Punk. You know, like that's a I think that's a really good call. Like just having him like really stand up to Punk, not just like half stand up to him. 
and they did set up like like you were saying they set up for a few shows they had the the news wires but also on the dvds where hydro would be like not wanting to party and going to the ring serious i mean like no guys like i'm not gonna dance with you guys like they were they were you know building to this moment where he finally just kind of breaks out and you know makes a serious challenge and you know gave even notes when his match with punk starts like i'm surprised this i think that's the first time hydro's ever shaken hands in ring of honor like this idea that you know he's becoming a serious competitor before our eyes over these last few shows and that brings us to cm punk defeating hydro via pinfall in 19 minutes 49 seconds with what mark nolte describes as an oklahoma side roll with a bridge i wrote in my notes oklahoma side roll is my favorite thing to eat at cracker barrel <laughs> um that's my dumb joke of the show uh i think i actually on rewatch matt i thought this was a hidden gem i it's not like a match of the year contender or anything like that but this is better than i remembered it i would put this if i had to give it a star rating like three and three quarters, maybe bordering on four, kind of like the same range. I'd put the Jack Evans Danielson match. Um, I think what I noticed watching this match is sometimes people say, Oh, that was a match where every move had a purpose. And I think a lot of times when people say that, like they underestimate how much wrestling is done on the fly. It isn't thought out move. Like, like for this, this is going to set up this, or, you know, sometimes it's just, I got to fill up another moment till the next moment. But this was a match where it was very heavy on story. And I did feel like almost everything they were doing played into the context of the story, which is it starts out with hydro, you know, winning the early exchanges, you know, he's slapping punk. He's not taking any of punk's shit. And then Eventually, there's a big turning point moment where Hydro's going for a springboard. Punk captures him in midair and turns into a power slam. And from there, Punk just controls most of this match. And he's just really good as a bullying heel where he's taking glee and dominating Hydro. He's doing little cheating things like eye gouges. I, I think he does something that a lot of wrestlers have trouble with, which is it's not like a thrill a minute when he's controlling the offense, but he keeps it moving along that it's never boring. And then... You know, he pulls Hydro up a couple times when he has it won on big spots. And every time, Hydro makes a comeback. And, you know, Hydro eventually makes a big comeback. And then I think the, the key point of the story is at the very end, there was a couple times where Punk would hit a big signature move and then pull Hydro up at a two count. And at the very end, after Hydro hits a big dragon suplex, which was his finisher, and takes a slow time and he makes the cover and Punk barely gets out of it. The next time Punk's in control, he instantly goes to the Oklahoma side roll and gets the pin. And it's like, rather than the other times where he's hitting a big move and he's taking, like, then pulling the guy up, as soon as, like, Hydro puts him in danger, he's like, oh, shit, I've got to win this any way I can. Like, and I think Gabe actually had a good moment on commentary where he sells Punk pulling uh, Hydro up from two counts as this guy's, like, Hydro's really gotten to him because he's trying to rub it in and like keep the match going where like rather than it, rather than Gabe selling it as like, Oh, look how much he's dominating hydro. He's selling. I, I like that. He tried to sell it as like punks really been gotten to by this guy that he's trying to really embarrass him in a way he wouldn't do otherwise. But I think this match, it's not like a thrill a minute match, but I just think it does a really, it's a really good kind of like, even though it's another weird match where, you know, punk isn't that old at this point, but it's a like, a veteran versus up and comer and punks gang to play the bully. And I, I thought it was really well done actually. 
I liked it. I don't think I liked it as much as you did. I thought it was maybe a couple minutes too long. Like there were a couple moments where it maybe dragged a little. And, you know, I do agree with you that Gabe kind of sold the pulling him up at two stuff pretty well. I still wish he didn't do it quite so much. Um, I get why and what, how it fit into the story, but it's not my preference. But I thought it was good, like definitely good. Hydro did a really good job, like showing fire, and you know, like I love the slaps. Like I just think, like that's like you know, like that really is a move that shows that this person is like bold and taking things seriously, and the and has the other guy on the ropes in some way. So I I really like that. But then you're right, Punk did a great job being a bully, which is why it was so funny that he was kissing Joe's ass previously. He'd be like, "You ain't shit, Hydro," while he was beating him up. Um, you know, but, and, you know, I liked, you know, even they, they did a good job, like, working out the, uh, the mess ups, like, Hydro slipped on a superplex attempt, um, I don't think that was on purpose, and so then Punk went for the Pepsi plunge, and Hydro escaped, and hit the top rope superplex, like, I thought that was a good cover, you know, I thought they were pretty quick on their feet, um, I liked that Punk kept escaping the dragon suplex, so they could build up to the moment where he hit it, I like that a lot, um, and I like the finish, like you said, the the quick roll up, the Oklahoma side roll um, for the sudden three count. I, it was just it was a formula match, you know, like but I, formulas are good when they're done well, right? Like it it worked, and Hydro got over, like it definitely got Hydro over. Um, so it compl- it accomplished everything that it tried to accomplish. So way I, oh, sorry, uh, no, I was gonna say so thumbs up. Uh, something I would say about this match is there are a lot of matches, especially nowadays, where it, it, you can tell the wrestlers their number one goal is making it the biggest, most exciting match possible. Where this match, I, again, I really liked it, but it didn't feel like their goal was making the big, the biggest, most exciting match possible. Although there was a bunch of near falls and it was exciting, but the goal was just to tell this story to try and get Hydro over. Like the story, it, you know, it was a story where it's not going to be a five star match or anything close to it. Not that I don't know if these two could have had a five star match if they tried, but like it, it's more just about telling that story of Hydro being the very defiant, fiery baby face that doesn't take any shit. You know, he's not the guy that's cowering away every time Punk like does something to him, he fires back, he slaps him, all that stuff. Um, other notes about this match, uh, we get a you're a racist chant for some reason. I don't know if that's responding to someone in the crowd or something Punk did. I have no idea. And then I, I remember a you're a racist chant directed at a racist fan at, in Chicago a few months ago, but I didn't hear anything that a fan said that was racist, at least not audible on mic on this show. But what uh, – but what we were referencing earlier and what this you're a racist chat might have been referenced to the some in some degree was uh, there is a woman screaming very loudly during this match over and over again, uh, very shrilly to the point where the crowd's chanting. Some people are chanting for her to shut up. And then I don't know who it was, but I will note that when they f- go into like the camera goes to the aisleway, sitting in the aisleway right near the entrance ramp is a like middle-aged black woman and i didn't recognize if that was jay lethal's mom or not but it would not surprise me i mean that's if this but, was an early instance yeah, of mama lethal yeah i mean given all of the, like the evidence you know like she is known for doing that she comes so she went to all his shows i've seen her in the audience even when she wasn't on camera like doing all that stuff so i'm gonna you know i don't know either i'm going to put money on the fact that yes it was 
and and this was a big match for her son, like yes, probably the biggest right. match the, of his career up to this point in some I, ways. So. I would say definitely in uh, ROH it was. Um, one other spot I thought was cool that I did not mention was Punk crosses Hydro's legs like they're going to be in an STF, and then he pulls Hydro's wife beater over his feet to keep them locked in place and then stomps and kicks at him like that, which I thought was a really cool. Oh yeah. I wrote that down too. That was really cool. I've never seen that in any other match. Have you? Yeah, that was no, never. And and I thought that was just a real cool, probably like spur of the moment thing that I just thought was someone should steal that. If someone, if you're wrestling someone in a wife beater or an appropriately baggy t-shirt. Yeah. Steal that spot. It's cool. Yes. Um, and then finally, it, this was not a great night for Mark Nolte on commentary because he this is the third or fourth screw up he's made. Mark Nolte at one point during this match says, I didn't see the Christopher Street connection seconding Hydro to the ring and gave us to be like, no, that's um, <laughs> that's Special K. I, 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 I could not believe that. Like he, he calls he calls Special K the Christopher Street connection. And then later, Mark Nolte says, you know, we got the Ricky Steamboat CM Punk match coming up and give us to quickly go. And it's not a match. It's a confrontation, you know, because Gabe clearly, you know, does not want to false advertise or mislead people or maybe even for Ricky Steamboat. I don't know what kind of insurance or like thing he had. Like, you know, Steamboat was very adamant at this point about not wrestling. So they had to call it a confrontation. It was not a wrestling match. So the idea that Nolte kind of like spills the like spills things, spoils things there is just like. Well, it's going to be a match. It's like, no, 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 it's a confrontation, Mark, confrontation. Um, but yeah, enjoyable match. Oh, and one other cool spot. I just, I don't know if I have to mention this, but I did like there was a moment where um, Punk is, bails up to the outside and Hydro gives chase and chases him around the ring, which is like a classic spot. And then, you know, Punk rolls in the ring first and you think, oh, like Punk's going to, this is where he's going to get the advantage on uh, Hydro. And he goes to drop the elbow on Hydro as Hydro rolls in the ring after him. And Hydro rolls out of the way. And then right after that is where Hydro does the springboard where he gets caught in the power slam. And I actually thought that was like a very clever little switch out because being Joe smart, Mr. Watch too much wrestling in his life person, you go, oh, this is where it's going to like the tide's going to churn and Hydro's going to lose the advantage. And it's like, nope, they fool you and then do it like right after which I thought was a cool little moment. But yeah, anytime that they can in a logical way subvert expectations, it's good. Yeah. So after the match, the crowd chants for Hydro. Punk points to a redheaded fan in the front row and goes, Look, Molly Ringwald, I love doing 16 candles. Uh, Punk offers his hand to Hydro and they shake, the kid having earned his respect. So again, another example of how I guess you could say either this is hinting at a punk face turn, which is happening on the next show, or just being or the other way you could say it is, oh, it's being inconsistent because, again, Punk was kind of a dick for the whole match, acting like a pure heel. And then at the very end, he gives the kid the respect. But I felt this worked because it did, you know, it's like you've earned my respect. I was an asshole to you before, but you got the handshake now. You've earned it. Yeah, it was very effective all in all. So next, Matt, some things did happen at the show live that did not make DVD. They all happened, I think, before the main event, so I'll just go over them quickly. H.C. Loke did come out and cut a promo to the live crowd announcing the Carnage Crew match against the new and improved Carnage Crew in a weapons match on the next show. So basically, probably, I imagine he just said what he said on the backstage promo we saw on the DVD. The Rock and Rebel, this is when he came out and he wrestled a guy, this live report says named Scott Cardinal with a leg drop. Someone said this was a really quick two-minute match. So 
Rock and Rebels promoter's license got him two minutes of ring time on this night. And then Allison Danger actually apparently did show up because at uh, this point they said before the main event, Allison Danger came out and announced she was putting a bounty on the heads of Dan Moff and BJ Whitmer for abandoning the prophecy. So although Moff and Whitmer were not on the card, I guess Allison Danger actually was there They must a very brief appearance. They must redo that angle at the next show like because they wouldn't leave that off a DVD and that does become a thing. Like she has a bounty on their head. So they must just redo the angle from scratch on another show. And it could be a thing as simple as I believe looking at the timestamps on the video, it was like a two minute 59, two hour 59 minute release. So maybe they literally felt they did not have, I forget how, I know they could go a little bit over, but I forget, it's not very much over three hours on like the tapes and the, and the DVDs in the day. So maybe they just, maybe it was literally like, we got to cut this over time. And then like you said, we'll redo it on another show. Also, um, Whenever, you know, given how bad the house mic is on a lot of these ROH shows at this time, anything that they can, any angle or announcement they can make backstage or on commentary as opposed to before a live audience is always helpful because the uh, mics don't really catch what they're supposed to catch. Definitely. And that leaves us with the main event, the survival of the fittest final, a six-way elimination match. Brian Danielson defeated Austin Aries, Colt Cabana, Homicide, Mark Briscoe, and Samoa Joe in 42 minutes, 28 seconds. And this is how the eliminations went down. Colt Cabana eliminated Samoa Joe via pinfall in 15 minutes, 22 seconds with a sunset flip. Mark Briscoe eliminated Colt Cabana via pinfall in 17 minutes, 6 seconds after he hit a shooting star press. And also after he had just taken uh, Lariat from Homicide. Uh, Homicide and Mark Briscoe both eliminated each other with a double pin on a Mark Briscoe German suplex where his leg gave out in 19 minutes, 5 seconds. And then way later in the match, Brian Danielson eliminated Austin Aries via another very high-angle Boston Crab in 42 minutes, 28 seconds. Brian Danielson is your very first ever Survival of the Fittest champion. Not that there's a title associated to it. Uh, Matt, what did you think about this match? All right, so before I talk about the match, we have to talk about what the announcers were talking about for oh, the first huh? third of the match, which was <laughs> the announcement, the introduction of the contender's ring, or is it the contender's circle? Um, so let me try to break this down for y'all. Um, okay, so there had been a top five in ROH previously. I had mentioned it on most of the shows that we had uh, have done so far. So now there's no more top five. Instead, there's going to be a, the contender's ring, and they've hyped this announcement all show. Artie's going to tell us what the contender's ring is. So Artie, through uh, Jimmy Bauer, um, is going to tell us about the contender's ring. And the contender's ring is basically based on your wins, who you go against, how you perform in matches – you will be voted on by the what did he say the championship committee or something? Is that is that the term he used for um, these uh, made up people? Notes, I'm not some some committee. Which again, he doesn't say who these people are, but basically he says these are the same people that voted on the top five rankings. Yes. Which again, I don't know if we ever knew about those people then. But right, they they did not exist until just now, and um, <laughs> I mean they still don't I exist. But they, they also still don't exist. <laughs> yeah. So, but no championship committee has ever existed in wrestling, so that's okay. They can make up the championship committee if they want. But so the championship committee would vote on people, and they would have to be on seventy five percent of ballots. 
how many people are on this committee? Um, it seems like way too many people. It seems like they have more people on the committee than they do have wrestlers on the roster. If you're talking about 75% of ballots, because he was like, if someone's only only on 70% of ballots, they might not get into the contenders ring slash circle. So they get into the, so they, if they're voted on by 75% of ballots, they get into the contender circle and then the, matchmakers can decide from that who gets a title shot and they they made a point to say there could be one person in the contender circle there could be zero people in the contender circle there could be 10 people in the contender circle so if there's zero people in the contender circle i guess that means nobody won any matches everything was like a double disqualification and the matches all sucked um that's the only way i could theoretically see that happening and i guess nobody the champions never have to defend their titles because no one's in the contender circle um and they gave made a point to say also i know i know you might have noticed we've been saying ring and circle we're still playing with the name <laughs> which is just hilarious to me but this went on for so long and they spent so much time talking about this i zoned out like six or seven times i'm just like who could possibly like i get why you're trying to do novel things but like why what like this this contender circle, I can spoiler alert, it never factored into anything. Like they might have mentioned it on a few shows, maybe maybe even till the end of the year, I don't know. But like I don't remember them being like, here's who's in the contender circle, here's who's got this percent on the ballots. Like he goes on and on. He says this he compares it to the Major League Baseball or Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and he says it's prestigious just to be named to the contenders. <laughs> so apparently there's a Hall of Fame vote after every show. They just do a full on like Hall of Fame vote where everybody like sending in their ballots. It seems exhausting, I'll be honest. Um, he goes he goes on and on about this and then it just like you have to listen like how in the we- it's not nothing too special, but like how in the weeds they get. So like Mark Nolte's trying to help Gabe out and he's like he's trying to like clarify what things mean. So he's like um, let me let me just look up my notes here. Um, I gotta I gotta figure it out. Okay, Gabe says people will be voted into the contenders ring based on these factors: their recent win loss record, their inherent skill, their quality of opposition, and quote their availability for Ring of Honor. And um, <laughs> Mark then tries to suggest that um, the quality of opposition thing means that like a guy like Hydro, who challenged a top opponent and lost but took them to the limit, might do better in the voting than someone that beat a lesser opponent. Which you go, okay, that's an interesting thing. But then they just keep going and going. And Mark does that thing again where he kind of like says the thing he should probably stay quiet where he goes um, – um, Mark goes like, all right, so if more than one person can be in the contender circle at any time, because Gabe just said, like you said, uh, 10 people could be at the same time. Uh, Mark goes, um, well, who wins the match? Like who gets the title match if more than one person's in? And Gabe goes, well, the ring of honor matchmakers will decide. And I just, I just like stared at the screen. Like, then what's the, like, you just talked about this for 10 minutes. What the fucking point is this then? And then like Nolte's like, I think Gabe like realizes that as he says it, and he goes, but you have to be in the contenders ring to even be considered for a titles match. And it's just like, it is so just an example of just making things different. To, like I realize when the Rob Feinstein split happened, they tried to change everything about the coming to make it different, which I appreciate. They tried to change the rules. They tried to change the code of honor. They changed the logo. They, they tried to change everything. But this was an example of just changing something just to say you changed it. And um, at the very end, and I'll give it back to you, Matt, uh, Mark Nolte says, so no more mystery rankings. And I just... <laughs> 
He's saying this when they had the clearest rankings you could imagine, a top five ranking from five to one, and now they're going to this most convoluted, you have to be named in with 75% of a mystery vote, and even then that doesn't guarantee you have a title shot, and Mark Nolte's way of summing this up is no more mystery <laughs> ranking. Also, what's funny about it is, like the way they, they talk about this committee that's voting, plus the matchmakers, you make it, they make it sound like ROH is like, has a full office building full of staff that's just like doing all this stuff. Like, there's just so many people who work for Ring of Honor. They have all these, like, they have a board of matchmakers and this championship committee. And it's like, maybe you can like downsize your expenses a little bit. You don't really need this many people voting on all this stuff. Like, could you imagine in like, in like a real sport, like every decision made is done by like a ballot after every game like and there's like all this committee like there's like a couple things done in ballots there's hall of fame and then there's like what all-star games right and pretty much everything else is just did you win did you lose what's your record right um this seems very convoluted the other thing i noticed with mark nolte it was almost felt like a 90s infomercial where gabe was like selling this product the contender circle and mark was like you mean no more mystery rankings like it was almost like the equivalent of somebody like trying to like i don't know like crack an egg in a pan but like the egg gets everywhere and stuff like that it's like yeah these damn mystery rankings they're so confusing um it it was pots are too hard to clean you're telling me there's a better way gabe yeah that's really what it was like and it went on for so long and the funny part is while they were doing all this bullshit there was like a pretty damn good match going on in the ring like a lot of charismatic guys like and talented wrestlers doing good stuff um yeah they chose to do this during the main event like there was no other match on the show they could have done this explanation. It had to be, I guess maybe the thought was, well, it's a long match and the eliminations don't happen for 15 minutes, but still it's the main event. And like you said, like you, you, you just said it cost you to zone out of the match. It's the main event. It's a good match. It is. It's and- really good. Like the whole time it's good. Um, like the beginning is of the match, like Mark jumps homicide, like right off the bat. And like that's, I think that's cool. Like it's like they're continuing the angle from earlier. It wouldn't have made sense any other way, and they did it. And, like, the wrestlers are just, like, on point here. I think they're all, like, bringing their A-game onto this. And the announcers are just like, like, what are you doing? Yeah. This was the closest we've come since the uh, final battle scramble where it felt like the – Doug and Gabe were just reading out like Christmas cards and thanking people for 15 minutes of that half-an-hour match. Oh, the the first anniversary show, yeah. Oh yeah, the first anniversary show, not final battle. At least that, at least that was kind of funny. And, and at least, like in that case, that match wasn't great. No, it was or, bad, <laughs> or really important actually. So it, it made sense that they would use that match to just start thanking people. This is like supposed to be a launching pad for a new star, and it, it's a good match. So yeah, I guess I'll get into it now, right? Yeah. Um. So, so yeah. So it's good. So it starts off with the homicide and Mark um, brawling. Danielson everyone's beating up Mark Briscoe for a lot of this Danielson gets a chicken wing on him which is the move that he in the future wins the title with um Aries gets in he quickly tags back out to Briscoe that's something that you see a lot early in the matches like guys tagging in and then quickly tagging out like it's it's like almost like mind games I guess not Danielson though he continues to stretch Mark and do all that stuff like Cabana does the same thing he teases fighting Joe but tags right into homicide and then homicide teases that he's going to brawl and he tags in aries so there's a lot of that and and i'm just like going through my notes and i see all right shut up about the contenders ring i wrote that like a couple of times (laughs) um 
there's a quick exchange where Ares takes Joe down with arm drags and a crucifix bomb, which kind of teases their chemistry from that final battle match they have later in the year. Um, Joe catches him and, like, slams him down hard and gets his Oklahoma roll, not a side roll, just a regular Oklahoma roll, equally delicious, on Ares for two. Um, it's very fast paced. They do a lot of in and out tagging. Like it's it's very fun. I think it's like the the pace is really good. Homicide hits a brutal draping DDT on Mark from the top rope. Really like spikes him on his head. Uh, Mark is just like taking a lot of punishment. Um, Danielson does like almost like a sideways like figure eight like Charlotte's finisher almost on Mark. And uh, Joe tags himself in and just slaps the crap out of Aries. And then Danielson hits a sudden tope onto Mark. Then Aries dives onto them. Then Joe teases a dive too. But while he's running, Cabana does a sunset flip and catches him with a quick pinfall. So, like, the idea is, like, Cabana pinned the champion. The crowd goes nuts for this. Like, they really were surprised. Cabana acts like he's shocked. He's fired up. Um, Joe's the first person eliminated. That was a great spot, I thought. And the way they did it, it was out of nowhere. It was probably super unexpected at the time. It sets up Cabana. I thought that was really good booking. I don't know if you yeah. uh, agree with that. Especially the way where, like like you were saying, it – it made Colt look like like it looked like they were starting one of those big dive trains where everyone does a dive, and you know Colt was in position to do his big acai moonsault to the floor, which he always does in a in a position like that, and instead he does the sunset flip back into the ring for the win. So I felt like they set it up really well, and I also felt like Gabe did a good job on commentary. I think it was Gabe, where I think at some point he says something like, "Colt Cabana's done something his partner couldn't do in sixty minutes." Which I thought was just a nice way to kind of yeah. add a wrinkle to it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, they do a really the announcers do a great job selling that. They're finally done at this point with the contenders ring circle, uh, whatever. Um, so Cabana is like fired up and he goes against Homicide. Homicide hits a lariat on Colt, but he's not legal. So Mark hits a shooting star press on Colt and gets the pin and eliminates him. So like now this is almost survivor series mode where like one person gets eliminated so now they're doing rapid rapid fire eliminations. Yeah. Um homicide low blows Mark and pile drives him gets a two count. Mark hits a German suplex but his neck gives out and both guys shoulders are down. That is the one thing I don't like about the match I would have to say. I hate that finish where both guys are sh- like it I never it never made sense to me. Like why would that why you know like I don't know whatever. But um Mark and Homicide are both eliminated, so they brawl to the back. Uh, um, Jay comes out. Um, you know, Gabe on commentary uh, should have acted more confused, I thought, because immediately when this happens, Gabe is like, they're both eliminated. Mark's shoulders are down. Usually when a finish like that happens, the announcer at least, like, pretends they thought that the guy doing the move, I mean, doesn't get eliminated. You know what I mean? And Gabe just immediately knew. It's like one of those, like, Nostradamus Gabe things where he's just like, so that that always bugs me. I don't know. But anyway, they all brawl to the back. Smokes brawls to the back too. And now it's down to Danielson against Aries. And they basically start like they're beginning a brand new match. Um, Danielson – first of all, the crowd is going nuts. Like they're chant, double dual chanting. They're very excited. They, I think, know that this is going to be good. And Danielson starts stretching Aries like in a similar way that he stretched Jack early. Like wacky moves. He ties Aries' arms behind his back and then drops him on the arms. He's pulling Aries' face and doing the I have till five thing. Um, but Aries, you know, he'll come out of it and like, unlike Jack Evans, like he's like, he's strong, like, you know, so he's, he comes out of it and like, 
comes right back at him. You know, he does this tumble roll from the one turnbuckle to another. He goes for, you know, that back elbow where he runs from one turnbuckle, does the other, does the back elbow. But Danielson catches him with a drop kick to the back, and I thought that was super well-timed. Just such a flush drop kick. Just a perfect spot. The crowd loves it. I thought it was great. Um, mm-hmm. Danielson dropped to... Uh, Drops to a knee or drops a knee to Aries' ribs and back, so you can see that he's going after Aries' ribs. Somewhere in there, Aries busts open his chin, and he's just bleeding everywhere. He uh, Danielson has Aries' blood all over him, um, but uh, Danielson's still going after the back, the ribs. Aries hits a springboard into Gary while Dragon is on the top rope, which causes Dragon to like almost be in a tree of tree of woe on the apron. And Aries hits a running drop kick to Danielson's head, which is like a stiff-sounding drop kick, but I guess it's probably more of a thigh slap. And he sends him to the floor, so Dragon sells like he hurt his knee because he was in the Tree of Woe, fell to the floor. So Aries goes after that. He's throwing him into the guardrail. Um, but Dragon comes back with headbutts to Aries' abdomen. Um, Dan Danielson does a lot of headbutts. <laughs> and there's another headbutt spot later. Um, he also does headbutts, I think, to either – it was either Colt Cabana or Mark Briscoe's back. Like he was doing all sorts of headbutts everywhere. And we know now that he was probably doing real headbutts because he had a lot of concussions. Yeah. 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 yeah it makes a lot of sense. So um, Aries um, hit well, – he, he suplexed Dragon to the floor and so Dragon sells his knee again. And he does like a – Aries does like a cactus jack elbow from the apron to the floor, which is cool. Um, Aries is just like bleeding badly from the chin. You know, that happened to me when I was like three years old. I slipped, I, I hit my chin on like a thing of ice and I had to get stitches. I, it's like, I very, I remember very little from that age, but I very much remember the river of blood coming out of my chin. Fun, fun for all of you to listen to. Um, Dragon moved after a 450 and attempt and then Aries like rolled and ran at Danielson and Daniels hits this like crazy shoulder block. Danielson, it was just like on point. Like all of his strikes just seemed so hard hitting and Aries selling. He did like this flip after the shoulder block. Then Danielson came back with this series of forearms and another like intense clothesline. Aries does another flip. Like, the strikes are just so good here. Um, and, like, everything is so crisp. Everything. Um, he does uh, He does a dragon suplex, gets two, and goes right to the cattle mutilation. But Ares actually escapes. Like, he, he doesn't get to the ropes. He actually, like, powers out of it, like, maneuvers out of it and gets this, like, fish hook rings of Saturn on Danielson and then the regular rings of Saturn. Danielson makes the rope. Blood's continuing to pour out of Ares' chin. Uh, Dragon keeps blocking the brain, the brain buster with knees to the head, but he finally hits it for a near fall, and the crowd totally buys Ares' near fall here. At this point, the crowd is totally into it. They're buying every near fall attempt. Um, Ares does a 450. Danielson gets his knees up. Then they trade more headbutts on their knees, both of them doing headbutts. And Daniels rocks Aries with three straight body slams, but Aries blocks a fourth, so Danielson hits a super stiff roaring forearm. Another incredible strike. Delayed cover for two. Aries grabs the ropes, and the crowd like goes nuts. Like They really believed all these finishes attempts. I guess because the strikes were so hard-hitting, and they didn't think Aries would last this long against Danielson. So a dragon hit the, the top rope back suplex for two crowd popped again all the two counts Aries does a quick small package which was a great near fall after dragon tried more body slams dragon does another body slam then he grabs a bear hug and the announcers are all like i've never seen a bear hug used effectively in so many years 
But he gets this low bear hug. He picks up Ares, and then he turns into that crazy, bendy, like, bear hug crab thing that he did to Evans. And again, Ares does, like, a real quick tap out. Dragon with the finishes. He's so good. The match was so good. Ares immediately made man superstar. He was just amazing in this. Dragon, I thought, was even better. I, um, you know, this, I mean... I thought this whole thing was great. This was a really great match. I thought the early part was great in its own way. The uh, the Aries versus Danielson was a great almost singles match. Um, I thought this was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Before I get into the match, I almost feel like there's two different levels to praise this match on. There's the match, but I also think I really like the booking of, of this match, and I'll, I'll go into I think this is one of Gabe's better moments as a booker so far in the Ring of Honor run. And... A lot of times I don't like these multi-man matches. and But then I, I think I've said before, you can see why bookers would like them because with these big multi-man matches, you can set up a lot of brand new feuds without giving away matches because a guy can pin someone, but you haven't really given away the singles match. Like no one's going to go, oh, Colt Cabana pins someone on Joe. Well, now I don't need to see them wrestle in a singles match. You're actually making a singles match interesting. And if you look at this um the results i'll just go through them again every single fall here sets up something new or further something and mostly it sets up something new so if you look at it colt cabana pins samoa joe via pinfall some colt cabana in a couple shows is going to have a title match against samoa joe he has no reason to face samoa joe for the title before this result and also it plays in great into history because the one thing they've done before was stuff like the uh the group versus uh, the Prophecy Six Man, where Dan Moff got a pin on Joe the year before, was they've played up this idea that if Samojo has any weakness, is that like a quick roll up can beat him. So it plays into that even like why would Colt get the quick win? It's because well he used like Joe's weakness, which is these out of nowhere little quick pins. So then you go to Mark Briscoe eliminates Colt Cabana. Well, in a show or two on the Death Before Dishonor weekend, the Briscoes challenge for the tag titles for the third time against the, the second city saints and they lose again. And there's no real reason for the Briscoes to get a third title shot because they already lost the last two times they've wrestled each other. But this match gives you like a little tiny bit of a reason because you can go, Hey, Mark Briscoe beat Colt Cabana. Then you got homicide and Mark with the double pin. And that leads us to a, basically a mini Briscoe's Rottweiler's feud, which starts on the next show. And that's basically like the final feud the Briscoe's have in ring of honor for this run. And then finally we get Brian Danielson beating Austin Aries, which leads to the crazy hour and a half long or whatever, or however long that match was 74 minutes or whatever match, you know, in a few months, in a couple months. So basically this one match every fall is setting up something. And it's basically, if you watch this match by the end, you basically kind of know what the next three or four months of ring of honor are going to be. And I think it's just really crazy how much he created with this one match. So before I get to the match, do you have any thoughts about that or just am no. I overhyping that or no, not at all. It was perfectly booked match. I really have like zero complaints about this beyond the, beyond the commentary. Like, yeah, like it was brilliantly booked, but also like, that last section of the match, like the booking couldn't have gotten to that where it was. Like it was the wrestlers who did that and they did an incredible job. Yeah. And, and that's the other interesting thing, which is I thought the first half of the match, which is all the multi-man match, it was good, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything special. It was good, not great. I think 
just because all six guys are so talented, like there's not a dud in that bunch that it was, even though it didn't really have a focus for the most part, other than just the finishes, the booking is telling the story more than the body of the match at that, at that point. But like just them killing time, it felt like a lot of four ways where it's just guys tagging in and out and like, okay, it's my turn for a minute. How do I fill the time? But these guys are all so talented. It was still enjoyable to watch. Yeah, it was, it was, it was entertaining literally every second of the match. I, I really do. I really yeah. do stand by that. But then, like you said, they basically, if looking at my notes, they do all, they do every elimination but the final elimination in a less than four minute span. And then it's like, okay, cut the shit. This match, it's basically two matches. It's a four way. And then within four minutes, they're like, okay, it's just, it's Austin Aries versus Brian Danielson for like 23 minutes. And you basically get a full length Brian Danielson Austin Aries match. And that is great. That, that is what everything you said. Um, I think this is just an amazing one night performance for Brian Danielson. He is just so, I mean, it's, it's hard sometimes to say new things about him, but he is so great in this night. And he, he's a guy where I think the way I can put it is, um, I was recently, Matt, you know, I like to cook a little, I like to bake. And I was looking up a month ago, appliances and I was trying to see like what makes the best like handheld mixer, what makes the best stand mixer and stuff. And you would think sometimes, oh, this thing will have new features. This one does or all that stuff. But a lot of times what like in the reviews, what separates the best one that costs like an extra $200 over this shitty one is it's like they do all the same things. They have all the same features. But on like the really good thing, every part is just handcrafted and it's just every part is is made to last and everything and when you watch brian danielson brian danielson is the 500 hundred dollar KitchenAid stand mixer of pro wrestlers where like <laughs> he's he, he he's he's been he's not doing anything that you haven't seen for 40 years but everything he does is doing it the exact way you want it done people have we- people have weddings just so they can receive a brian danielson <laughs> yeah, exactly I, I mean i wouldn't i wouldn't look him aside if i got him for a wedding exactly um but you know, it's everything he does. It, I, you said something, I forget your exact wording, but during the match review, something like just like it's the authority he does things with the crispness. I think you were saying like the execute, like everything he does is just precise and looks good. And it's snug. Like when he does a submission, there's like no daylight in the arms or something where some people, they just grab a submission. They're just like, well, I'm going to roughly dangle my arms around your face now. Like everything he does is just the exact way you would want that move done. Like he's he's a guy where you could take any move he does in a match like this, and you would use that as a textbook example if you were teaching a wrestling school of like how do you want to perfectly execute this move? And he's just the machine who does all of that, and th- that's where he's impressive. Where it's not like he's doing something that no one's ever done before. It's just although you know, although he does a little bit of things that you don't see anyone else ever do. Honestly, some of those holds. Yeah, actually, some of the holds on this show, yeah, he actually was kind of getting more experimental. Probably the closest, you know, people compare him to Zack Sabre Jr. If there was ever an era of Danielson that Zack Sabre Jr. was influenced by, it was probably this era because he is kind of tweaking things like that and doing a bit of like the I'm really going to bend you back submissions that Zack likes. But um, yeah, just a great match between him and Aries. Not even like a, t- a super in-deep story, although, you know, Danielson does – they do a little bit of body part work. But it's just a great match. And they build it up so well where, 
like you were saying, the, re- the reactions the fans were giving to the near falls by the end, the crowd was into it right from the start, like they were excited for it, but they keep building it to by the end, that crowd's like going, like frothing at the mouth almost for, you know, they feel like it, it goes from a match where at the start they're like, oh, this should be cool to by the end they're like, this is one of the best matches we've seen this year. You know, they're, they're freaking, and it's funny because if you listen to commentary, you can actually hear Mark Nolte. Like I've never heard Mark Nolte so far in the short time we've listened to him react this way where you can tell he's really into this match and he's getting like legit excited. And by the end, he says something like, um, you know, people were saying Joe versus punk is the match of the year. This is my pick for match of the year. Like he's like, you can tell he means it. Like he's totally in love with this last, you know, 20 something minute match that he's getting. And he's just, you know, it's one of those times where you can tell a guy is being completely genuine in commentary, which I think helped sell it on a night where I've complained a lot about Mark Nolte and he's made a lot of gaffes. I, that was a moment where I think he legit added to this match. Um, I think this is an early instance of Brian Danielson doing the, I've got till five ref, maybe the first time that he's done it. I know we've seen CM Punk do it before Danielson's done it, but he does it here. Although not in like a big, I know the crowd's going to chant along with me way, but he does it. Um, yeah, just, uh, I don't have much more to describe than you said, but it's a great match. I'll, I'll go to the observer. They had a comment that I thought was a little bit interesting where, um, Dave wrote in the observer, the idea of this show was to make Austin Aries. And it was felt that he'd get over bigger losing to Danielson in a long match than beating him. And then Dave also writes, people are raving about Danielson these days as being an incredible technical wrestler. He's, and that's basically the end of Dave's thought. Um, I would say that's like a no dumb moment, but I guess I can't assume that everyone in 2004 was watching a lot of Brian Danielson. Of course they literally named that award after him, but in the future, but yeah, but I I think either way it probably would have worked. I think this way worked well and I don't think I would have changed it, but do you, do you feel like there would have been a backlash or anything if Aries had just wanted to? I think the fans would have completely accepted it. Wouldn't have been a backlash, but certainly no reason to do it any differently than they did it. And obviously, they do give Aries the win in just a few months. They do the two out of three falls rematch. So right. he gets and, his win. They just hold it off. And also, they wanted to build up a Danielson versus Joe match. It wasn't like he says it was the point was to get Aries over, but clearly they wanted to get Danielson over too. Like it wasn't like it wasn't just about Aries. Oh, yeah, and that's the other thing. The other match that's up is it gives, you know, even though this match technically is not in stone, you get a uh, title shot because, of course, we must respect the contenders, ring, circle, corner, whatever. Um, you know, it, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that a few months later, Danielson's wrestling Joe for the title because this is basically gives him a reason to say, I deserve, you know, the world title shot. So that sets up another match. In fact, I think Danielson only appears like twice before that title match. I think he wrestles Aries in a rematch and then he maybe wrestles on, um, one other match. And then the next show is the match against, um, Joe. So he's, he's not around for a lot of the upcoming shows. So this really does set up all of his upcoming matches. Yeah. And yeah, just great match, really great booking. And, I don't know if Austin Aries, if necessarily you would say he had one match that made him because I think the Joe match at final battle really puts him over the top to a new level. I think that obviously the big long rematch he's going to have with Danielson got a lot of attention. He was getting buzzed even before ring of honor with his performance at the super eight, but this is definitely like a hallmark match. Yeah. I, I would say, I would say he go, he becomes like a top ROH star in this match. Like, I think there's there's no going back after this. 
Yeah, he gets a few big kind of tentpole matches in 2004, but this is definitely the first one that kicks it off where he's going to have he's going to have a big next six months or big next 18 months. But this is kind of the first one that lets you know, like they've really earmarked, even though technically Shelly's the leader at this time of his group. They've really earmarked big things for Aries. Yeah, the funny thing is, one year after this show, Aries is losing the ROH title to CM Punk. Yeah, which again is a crazy thing you don't expect coming because Ring of Honor's, you know, big Gabe's philosophy. Well, obviously, we'll get into it in 2029 when we cover those shows. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the. Um, you know, Gabe's philosophy is usually you use the title to put over the new young guy. So that was the, the idea that for once the veteran was beating the the kind of guy that was the man, not that Aries wasn't putting over the next guy. But yeah, just and also credit to Brian Daniels. This is just another example of how great and how ballsy he was to go. You're going to win twice tonight. And he's decided, you know what? I'm going to win both the matches with the Boston Crab, a move that I never win matches with. And then you think, oh, is that going to be his new finisher? It's like, nope, just felt like doing it this night. Yeah. Also, it was like not really a Boston Crab. It was like this like weird, like kind of amalgamation of amalgamation of things. Yeah. It's just it's amazing that he always he would just pull things out like that for a spur of the moment. And then he would not use them again. He would be like, Okay, this was cool. I'm I'm moving on to the next thing, and just amazing wrestler. A true wedding, a true wedding gift of a wrestler. <laughs> the, the the perfect wedding gift. He's not a he's not the toaster oven of uh, wrestlers. That's for sure. No. Um, after the match, there are chants for both Danielson and Aries. Aries doesn't want the crowd support. He's still trying to act like a heel, even though it's kind of going against what the crowd wants here. But they shake hands, and then. Next, we go backstage to the embassy. Nana is browbeating the outcast killers for losing tonight and orders them to go to his hotel and start preparing his bath. He goes, start running my bath, I think. And I thought to myself, unless that hotel, I guess the hotel's really close because the Ramada, they're in the Ramada. But before that, I was thinking, isn't the bath going to get cold if you tell them to do it too soon? But um, we should note also, we didn't really mention it, when uh, the outcast killers wrestled, Xavier, even though he's injured and actually out of Ring of Honor. At this time, I guess they still had plans for him. He's still, I think on commentary, they say he's about to get surgery for his shoulder, which I believe is true. And so Xavier's here backstage. Xavier tells Nana, I warned you about the outcast killers. Nana scolds him, kind of puts him down. He says, you're hurt right now. This isn't your number. You're not my number one priority right now. Uh, Nana says at the next show, he'll use all his funds to get some of the top talent in Ring of Honor. He tells Xavier just to keep collecting the checks he's sending for being hurt. So, Kind of a weird – I mean it's a little curiosity where there's a, this is a moment in Ring of Honor history where we actually get signed that doesn't really lead anywhere because Xavier obviously doesn't go anywhere. But Nana's T, Nana's T's definitely leads somewhere, although he has not yet come up with the term the crown jewel yet. Yeah. That's interesting too. Yeah, that they that they must have thought of it before then because you'd think if they had that I, that name in mind right now, they would have used it, but they don't. Yeah. Um we cut to Generation Next elsewhere backstage. Alex Shetley says they didn't win all their matches tonight, but it's not a big deal. He says they took out Captain Charisma, John Walters. They took out the Neo-Dynamite Kid, Josh Daniels. So even Shelly's picking on him, not just me, Matt. And uh, <laughs> then uh, Austin Aries took Brian Danielson to the limit, but not without a prize. At this point, the camera zooms in on uh, Aries' chin, and we can see there's a pretty gross, deep gash on his chin. We can see it's been cl- it, it's not been sewn up yet, but... It's been cleaned up so we can actually see how deep it is. And we can also see he has quite a bit of uh, 
blistering or not blistering, but red marks on his chest from chops and yeah. stuff. Yeah, just the technical uh, stuff is so bad. Like they can't zoom in without it being blurry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're just they are so bad at it uh, at this point. Shelley says they've only just begun, and as the and I wrote going to what you just said, as the camera struggles to focus to get a second clear shot of Ari's chin, we fade to black and the show ends. And they never do get that second clear shot. They like keep zooming in and it never focuses. And you're like, well, surely they're going to let this focus before they cut to black. And nope, blurry <laughs> shot of his chin. That's how the show ends. It's funny. I, I like Shelley's promo though. Like I, I do think that Generation Next made a mark on this show, and I think. They're doing a. They're doing well with them. Like I think they. Their. Uh, their push is going well. Yeah, I mean Roderick Strong's probably. I mean, Shelley got his mic time. Evans got a really memorable match. Like the thing I'll say about that match is not only do I really like it, but that match is so distinctive. There's so many matches on these Ring of Honor shows I haven't seen them in years, and I don't remember them. So it's almost like watching them new again. I remembered a lot of that match going back and watching it. Yes, it was like, a very memorable match. Event. Very memorable. Um. And that ends the show. Uh, the next episode we will cover is Ring of Honor Reborn Completion, which is a big show with a lot of big angles. But what well, did we think about this show? Uh, Matt, what did you think as a whole of Survival of the Fittest? I think the only things you need to watch involve Brian Danielson and uh, CM Punk. And uh, the rest of the show you can pretty well skip. Um, the first half was fine. Like, they were, like I said, a bunch of pretty good stuff. But ultimately – didn't amount to that much but all the danielson related stuff was really good the main event was fantastic like really great i thought um mark nulty's favorite match so far um i thought it held up very well um you know it was a good coming out party for lethal um the commentary and the production could be very annoying at times on the show and i think i think the production hurt the show a lot for me honestly like it just it made the the early part of the show, which wasn't super great wrestling, hard to watch. Um, but the good stuff was good enough that I would recommend it. I wouldn't say it was one of the best shows of the year so far compared to some of the others, but it was, you know, it was solid with some really good stuff on it. This is the closest I've, um, probably felt in watching rewatching ring of honor for the show of a, of a DVD feeling like a TV show. I felt like this almost felt like more like a supersized version of what I imagine a, a ring of honor TV show would be where a lot of the matches in the first round of that tournament felt more throwaway effort than ring of honor matches usually do. But then you got so many angles and there were so many things that were either moved forward or like advanced or set up for the next show that I actually, I, I feel like, a person that wasn't watching every show might not appreciate that, but I actually kind of like the feel of, wow, there sure was a lot of stuff set up, particularly in the second half of the show. I like that they were trying to elevate a couple new guys. and But yeah, going to what you said, if you're just looking at like highlights without context of, of where Ring of Honor is at, I would say Jack Evans versus Danielson, Hydro versus CM Punk, and the main event is all you need to see. But then that's about half the show. So that's half the show that's probably worth watching and the rest of it's not essential, but I probably enjoyed the show a bit more than you. It's not an all time, like one of the best of the year, but I, I liked it barring the absolutely horrendous production and the sometimes not great commentary on this show. That's fair. I thought for the first 90 minutes outside of the Danielson thing, I was kind of like, all right, this show is kind of not that exciting, but the, the last couple matches really did make a big difference. 
Oh yeah, it's definitely very top heavy. But again, those last two matches are like an hour plus. But it's definitely a top heavy show. Um, that brings us to the end of the show. Um, if you want to reach us at Trevor Dame on Twitter is my Twitter handle. At Mayor MGF is Matt's Twitter handle. And uh, remember, so not just as did Matt just do a podcast on the Pro Wrestling Super Show, which you should check out on our network. So it should be in the feed, but. Remember to keep a look on Matt's and I'll plug it to Matt, uh, my social media in the coming days, because Matt's got another podcast appearance that I think if you are a Matt Feuerstein fan, I don't know what good, uh, catchphrase we should have for Matt Feuerstein stands, but if you are a Matt Foyer stan, okay, there we go. Um, you will, I think you'll be really excited to see what podcast Matt's guesting on. Matt, I, I know, and it's, I'm excited. I appreciate that um, you came up with a name for a group of people that definitely don't exist. Um, but the, but, but thank you. Matt Foyerstan, if you're a big Matt, I mean, I am, so there's at least one of us, Matt, and I'm willing to bet there's a whole, whole lot more, especially because this is the third podcast you've done recently. I mean, you, you are in demand. I am lucky I even got to book time with you this week. <laughs> uh, well, thank yeah, you. If you wanna, Very kind. If you want to... If you want to write an email to us, uh, through the years at gmail.com, that's T-H-R-O-H. And uh, we, I believe we also have still have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only message board. I used to plug the Voices of Wrestling message board. They've gotten rid of that message board. We they, Just to get rid of us, Matt, they've switched to a discuss uh, like the kids do these days, draft. But, um, yeah, unless you have anything else to say, again, Ring of Honor Reborn completion is the next show. We're going to have the return of Low-Key in a very memorable angle that had to be edited for TVD. Uh, Jimmy Rave is the crown jewel. We finally crown a new Ring of Honor peer champion. And uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I am looking forward to that. It is going to be, that's a wild show. A lot of big stuff on it. Um, I'm pretty sure the production is a lot better on that show. I remember it, that. So I'm looking forward to that. It to be worse. Yes, so. I'm looking forward to watching a show and not being utterly distracted by the production. So can't wait double double disc show at the time so that'll be fun until next time have a good time have a great time